Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Of um, living tissue that is caused by oxidization. Oh, oh so what chemicals recorded, recorded give antioxidants their power? Well, it's usually enzymes, vitamins, and minerals that you find in your food sources. So enzymes and vitamins are the way to go if you want to get rid of free radicals. So your antioxidants are very important in the development of a strong immune system, having a strong defense against killer superbugs and plagues even. So remember that. Well, let's talk about the theory. Because in the 1950s, Dr. Denham Harmon was the first to seriously link accumulative free radical damage to disease and premature aging. A nutrient problem America was faced with uh, that the government's recommending, you know, the daily allowance, the recommended daily allowance. Well, he saw that that was inadequate. So one of the problems is that that daily allowance system, well, it provides people, it just divides people into two nutrient categories, those below 50 years of age and those above 50 years of age. So do you think that someone who's is like 90 would require the same nutrition as a 51-year-old? Well, Dr. Art Euling has stated that there are scientific studies linking free radicals to a decline in immune system function. So the elderly may not be eating well, and their immune system is not getting old. It's just not strong enough. They're not getting the nutrients that the immune system needs to help protect them. So there's no doubt that antioxidant nutrition can enhance the human immune function and supercharge it. All right, let's talk about chemicals helping us fight. There are several ways that we can wage war against disease. Our bodies encounter foreign matter every day. The job that our immune system has is to neutralize any foreign invaders that are threats to our well-being and dispose of them. So when our bodies do not get the nutrition it needs through vitamins and enzymes and minerals and so forth, it's not as able to stop the chain reaction of what is called a free radical. So this is a transfer, basically, of electrons or hydrogen to an oxidizing agent. All this can occur in your cells and can damage or kill a cell. So your antioxidant nutrition in foods and herbs will terminate that replication of the free radical, save your cells, which science declare as a consequence of disease. Free radical is the consequence of disease. Well, antioxidants are really powerful. And they're so powerful, they're a natural preservative. And guess what? The gasoline manufacturers will add antioxidants to gasoline to preserve the formation of to keep gums from forming, which could clog the engine. Likewise, we don't want to gum up our own bodies and make us targets for things like heart disease or neurological disease, autoimmune disease, cancer, cataracts, macular degeneration, and so on. So what are some of the major hitters? 
Well, in the 1950s, research discovered that the most potent antioxidants as a human preservative were, were vitamin A, vitamin C, and vitamin E. Now, to be clear, we're talking about natural sources, not synthetic ones. So biochemistry was actually revolutionized by this discovery of the influence that these nutrients had on living organisms. So the industrial world will use antioxidants to preserve their products, their gas, their tires, their unsaturated fats. And that's great. But you want to use antioxidants to preserve you and to rebuild and boost your immune system and stay healthy. So here again, science knows vitamins, nutrition, supplements can have a positive, meaningful impact on our health. And when they come out and state in the news, they don't. Well, we know what they're doing. They're protecting the pharmaceutical company's bottom line. So how many antioxidants are we talking about? How many antioxidants have you in your system? Really is going to depend on your lifestyle. So antioxidants are classified into a couple of categories. There's the water-soluble antioxidants found in your blood and in your lipid solution antioxidants designed to protect your cell membranes. And your body can make antioxidants, but it really needs the right nutrition to do that. So foods and herbs with selenium and zinc will help the body build your antioxidant reserves. And this is why a lot of people say you need zinc uh, in order to, uh, you know, for colds and flu. You know, this is one of the reasons, antioxidants. So these minerals will help the body utilize your antioxidant enzymes. So that's important. Well, let's look at your selenium and zinc foods, okay? You can tap into the foods that assist the body to make antioxidants. Uh, Foods contain selenium and zinc, things like cashews, kidney beans, salmon, uh, haddock, wheat germ, uh, beef, turkey, pumpkin seeds, pecans, pinto beans, walnuts, eggs, peanuts, oatmeal, almonds, anchovies. I mean, you you have a lot of food groups here that you can tap into. Other foods and general foods that also contain a lot of antioxidants are your fruits and vegetables, your whole grains, your nuts, your seeds, your lentils, and get this, even chocolate, dark chocolate. So I love chocolate. Yes, I do. Don't eat a lot of it, though. Uh, Green tea and vegetables um, also, any dark green Uh, Leafy vegetables will have antioxidants, as well as your yellow and orange pigment uh, fruits and vegetables. Lots of antioxidant nutrition there. So uh, definitely go for, you know, uh, all all those wonderful, uh, like oranges and mangoes and things like that. All right. What about herbs? Are there any herbs that can help us out? Well, way before microscopes and labs were created, there were the ancient healers like Pitney and Elder and Galen who wrote about the healing power of plants. So today we know that these plants are supercharged. Guess what? Yep, antioxidants. They can help us tap into just what we need, supercharges just at a certain time when we're sick. Um, in ancient Rome, they used a lot of herbs. Um, they used milk thistle, ginkgo, ginseng, red raspberry, cayenne, echinacea, astragalus root, garlic, onion, ginger, horseradish, and a lot of many other herbs. 
just there's so many, you know, but you can tap into the medicinal power of herbs. Herbs are here for the service of man. Don't forget that. God said that. Now, it's really interesting that modern science is focused on milk thistle and ginkgo regarding antioxidants. Ginkgo is said to be the world's oldest tree species, and science has studied these herbs for years, trying to unlock its secrets. So let's talk about your immune system for a second because when you have fat and oxidized fat kind of deadly to your organs of the human body, especially your liver, researchers like Dr. William Lee have studied that when you use milk thistle, it is a proactive way to help prevent fat and poisonous substances from hurting your liver. So you don't want a fatty liver, then you definitely, according to Dr. Lee, you need milk thistle. It prevents the fatty liver. So scientific studies have shown that milk thistle is very effective at detoxifying the liver tissue. So far, far, far essential, more uh, chemical nutrition has been identified in milk thistle to accomplish this than any, any other product uh, because of the silymarin, which is the antioxidant in your milk thistle. Uh, originally, it's indigenous to the Mediterranean region, but it's also now cultivated all over the world. The early Europeans would also use seeds of milk thistle plant as coffee substitutes. So, if you have a, you know prescription drugs, let's say you're, you have a heart condition, you're taking drugs for infections, arthritis, blood pressure, any other chronic disease then you're also going to have suppressed immune system function. So your antioxidant foods and your herbs with antioxidants are going to help revitalize an immune system and uh, pick up function there. Estimated between 75% to 85% of Americans aren't eating enough fresh fruits and vegetables for their antioxidant needs. So a good example of what free radicals can do to your cells is if you cut an apple and expose it to oxygen, and then watch it turn brown. Hopefully it's, you know, an organic one. It's not been a genetically modified apple that can last for months. (laughs) It still looks like you just cut it. But, you know, the oxygen will quickly rot that apple, and that's exactly what um, free radicals do inside the body. It it affects your tissues that way. It breaks the things down, and uh, it affects you. So... um, other things that can cause a free radical byproduct are uh, things you're exposed to, like chemicals, toxic chemicals, dust, mold, ex- if you get too much sunlight even. And uh, water and air pollution definitely are in that mix as well. So your diet, along with your immune system support herbs, are going to play a huge role in protecting you, giving you those giving you these antioxidants to protect you from free radical damage, killer viruses, bacteria, even plagues. You know, if you got some antioxidants, you got a better chance. So who knew that foods and herbs provide powerful anti-germotic, antiviral protection, right? So, well, God knew. He said herbs are meat in Genesis 1, 30 and 31. That means they're powerful. He also said herbs are here for the service of man in Psalms 104.14. So your antioxidant herbs and your foods are going to be a huge benefit, 
They're going to help you through the allergy season even. So if you're interested, call the folks at Apothecary Herb. Ask about their antioxidant-rich herbs like their milk thistle, their heart formula, their herbal eyewash, their ginsengs, their brain concentrate with ginkgo, the Echinacea Deluxe for sinusitis. Uh, they're all-in-one uh, tonic to help you through just about everything. I mean, it's a straggly's root. Uh, it's, it's, it's endless. Their line of uh, antioxidant immune-boosting products are endless. So give them a call. Get that free product catalog, 866-229-3663, or visit them online at thepowerherbs.com, 866-229-3663. Get a free product catalog. Man, that hour went quick. The information presented is not intended to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure disease, so seek medical advice from a licensed medical physician if you dare before using any product or therapy. I'm your herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Until next time, be well. heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. People realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. AVR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. 
Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Good evening and welcome to the Covenanters Call. This is Pastor Mike Hoover, and we are broadcasting live this evening from sunny southern Indiana, and we do welcome you to the broadcast. We are a Bible call-in question and answer program, although I can't remember the last time we had a phone call. really doesn't matter, but if you want to call in this evening, that number is 1-800-932-1980, 1-800-932-1980, or Feel free to call on the local number. That's area code 541-826-0953. One more time, 541-826-0953. Well, we appreciate all the folk in the chat room this evening, including myself. There's about a half a dozen of of us in there and uh, some rip-roaring conversation already going on. Um, One of the fellows in there speaks a language all his own. I still am trying to figure that thing out, but you come on in. And uh, join us, and uh, we appreciate the fact that you have that opportunity. And uh, just give yourself a secret agent code name. Come on into the chat room, and uh, you can be a part of this evening's broadcast. Let me mention several things. First of all, this coming Sunday, uh, one of our missionaries, Brother Pete Heisey, who has 
been a missionary to the gypsies in Romania uh, for the last dozen years or so. Pete and I go way back. Uh, we're fellows, both of us, in our sixth decade of life, just beginning it. And a uh, dear friend of mine, we're looking forward to having him this Sunday. going to share with us how the minister goes over there. Um, had the opportunity a number of years ago to go over there. And most of our luggage was three accordions that we took and uh, gave them over there to the Heisies. They used them in the ministry over there. I remember standing in the street over there on, in Temesaro, Romania, and uh, just striking up a conversation with people and starting to play the accordion. And all of a sudden, a crowd would gather, and we'd just have a church service right there in the middle of the street. And uh, one of the blessed times that we've had on mission trips before. And uh, we're looking forward to having Pete and Julie. And uh, their little young daughter, Laura, is going to be with them. And uh, that's this Sunday at uh, Stampers Creek Historic Baptist Church. And if you'd be interested in coming and being a part of that, by the way, I'm going to pre-warn you, forewarn you, as I have forewarned the people in our congregation. Uh, one of the things that, that Pete likes to do is go around and visit palm readers and crystal ball gazers. You say, why in the world would he do something like that? Well, he does it for an opportunity to give the gospel to the gypsies, because most often those people are gypsy. And it's very rare for them to see a white guy walk in and begin speaking their gypsy language. So we're looking forward to a good time with them. Then in the middle of next month, uh, Brother Ben Wharton will be with us from Pickens, South Carolina. Brother Wharton been a friend of ours for, oh my, he's known me longer than I've been alive, at least known my mother. So I can't, I, at least 60 years he's been my friend. And we're looking forward to a good time with him as well. So that's some of the exciting things that are going on here uh, at Stampers Creek Historic Baptist Church. Now, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn. Uh, we're going to start in a little while. We've been talking about uh, the strangeness of our society. That's an ongoing topic here at uh, the Covenanters Call. Uh, let, let me just let, let me see if I got this right. Let, let me just give you an example, all right? Now, you tell me if I got this right. Now, if I cross the North Korean border illegally, then I'll get 12 years hard labor. If I cross the Iranian border illegally, then I'll get detained indefinitely. If I cross the Afghan border illegally, most often you get shot. Now, if you cross the Saudi Arabian border illegally, you'll be put in jail. If you cross the Chinese border illegally, you may never be heard from again. If you cross the Venezuelan border illegally, you'll be branded a spy and your fate will be sealed. If you cross the Cuban border illegally, uh, you'll be thrown into political prison to rot. But if you cross the U.S. border illegally, you get a job, you get a driver's license, Social Security card, you get welfare, food stamps, credit cards, subsidized rent or a loan to buy a house, you get a free education, you get free health care, Get your own lobbyist in Washington, D.C. You get billions of dollars worth of public documents printed in your language. Uh, you get the right to carry your country's flag while you protest that you don't get enough respect. And in many instances, you get to vote. Now, I just want to make sure I had a firm grasp on things so that I can understand exactly what's going on. Friends, we live in such a strange society today, it's no wonder that many people that you talk to on the street and invite about the services to hear the preaching of the Word of God, most often they don't even want to have anything to do with Christians. And I believe the main reason is because more than likely they've never seen a real one. 
There are a lot of people that like to hang that moniker around their neck, like to label themselves as a Christian when they're really not. You see, you find the answers to these questions in the Word of God. And that's what we've been trying to do over the last number of months here on the Covenanters Call. We talk to you about what a real church is. We've talked to you about what a real pastor is. And we're in the process of dealing with what a real evangelist is. And along these lines, we've also dealt with what these subjects are not. It's no wonder people today, when they hear about an evangelist or hear that special services are going to take place, will turn a deaf ear to it and want nothing to do with it. It's because, friends, we live in such an undereducated, over-medicated society that most people don't have a clear grasp of reality. And that is certainly true when it comes to the things of the Word of God. I was watching a video just this week of a, of a, of a sodomite pastor. Now, based upon what my Bible says, friend, there's no such thing as a sodomite pastor because a true sodomite, a practicing sodomite, is not a Christian. Now, if you want to label me with that, that's fine, but that's what the Bible says. Uh, you cannot serve Christ and the devil, all right? And the Bible tells us very plainly that someone that has turned against what God created them to be and is trying to do something, the Bible says it's unseemly. Romans chapter 1, you read about it in the book of Leviticus. You'll read that the Bible said they weren't even supposed to dwell in the land back then. Today, we're letting them take over. But that's the society in which we live. So it's no wonder that people don't have a true grasp of what things really are. We've been talking just recently, matter of fact, on our last broadcast, uh, we've been answering several questions about revival. Okay, what is revival? All right. And the first question we had to ask is this. Is this practice scriptural? This American evangelist that sweeps into town with big banners over the front of the church and people giving big money and the extravaganza that takes place. Is this a biblical scriptural practice? The second question we tried to answer and did answer from the word of God is this. Why revival? Is there some kind of a standard level of spiritual anemia that a church has to reach before the, the evangelist is called in, the spiritual fix-it man? And this evening, we're going to ask another question. Who's responsible for revival? Oh, we know lots of great big names out there, don't we? I could run off a whole list of them for this evening, but it really doesn't matter. What matters is what the Bible says. Who is responsible when revival comes. Where is this idea or concept that revival is the evangelist's job? Where is that found in the New Testament? Do any of the responsibilities, activities, or duties of the New Testament evangelist lend themselves to validating this practice of staging and bringing about revival? Does God declare somewhere in the Bible that the evangelist so designated in Ephesians chapter 4, is to be the spiritual spark plug for reviving spiritually stooping local churches. Who invented this idea anyway, friends? What does the Bible say about personal spiritual revival? Does it hang the responsibility on anyone other than the individual Christian? Maybe the pastor, teacher. It seems that if anyone is to be the revival meister outside of the individual Christian's personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then it should be his pastor-teacher 
his under-shepherd. After all, isn't he the one who will give an account to God for the souls of those Christians given to his care? You have your Bibles tonight? I hope you do. Take them real quickly and turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. I want you to listen now to what verse 17 says. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves. For they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Does the Bible declare that the evangelist is held accountable by God for the spiritual vitality of all the church members? Not only that, but does the scope of this assumed but false responsibility broaden itself to include many churches all across the land? Does the, quote, American evangelist, end of quote, go hop-skipping from one church to another like a honeybee in a field of spring clover, dropping pollen here, picking some up there, and sprinkling his revival powers all over the place like so much pixie dust? Wow, what a responsibility. You see, friends, the target or the focus or the reason for the existence of the, quote, American evangelist, end of quote, in the church revival type of operation are the individual Christians within those churches he services. That's a ruse. That's a false operation. It's a perversion of who the evangelist is to be according to the Word of God. Reviving individual church members on a regular revolving door basis as the reason for his existence and calling is not the job of the evangelist. It really isn't, friends. A variation on the theme of the standard no-frills church revival meetings is a meeting or series of meetings given names such as preachers' meetings or missions conferences or gospel meetings or such-and-such a seminar and so on. Evangelists are usually invited to these meetings, often held in a church and sponsored by that church. The idea is that attendees, preachers, missionaries, evangelists, regular church people, and so on, will hear several sermons preached by the visiting preachers, missionaries, evangelists, and be revived. If the meeting is a missions conference, then perhaps some of the missionaries present will garner more support for their mission efforts across the globe. If it's a preacher's meeting or a preacher's conference, then several of the visiting preachers will preach, and perhaps an evangelist or two will preach. Everyone will be blessed and uplifted by the good preaching, and then all will return home praising the Lord. Evangelists are not necessarily the main event at these meetings, but often they attend or or are invited and are given the opportunity to preach. Evangelists do move from preaching venue to preaching venue as part of their overall modus operandi. These kinds of meetings are not a bad thing, by the way. Often they serve a very useful purpose and are very much spiritually uplifting. What's subtly perverse in these meetings, and others like them, is that every guest preacher has a name, a designation, a nomenclature by which all the rest of us know him. There are pastors and teachers, there are missionaries, and then there are evangelists. 
Everyone accepts these people as the men they are named to be or are described as because they think it's all scriptural, as far as they know. Who was there, one may ask, when he hears a report of the preacher conference. Well, there was Pastor Gump Stump and Missionary Catch Him Quick and Evangelist So-and-So. The one who gives the report and the one who hears the report believe and think that they know what each one of these men of God do in life as they serve the Lord. The pastor pastors, the missionary missions, and the evangelist evangelizes. Doesn't everybody know that? Another venue which American, quote, evangelist, end of quote, often participate in is the camp venue. Church camps, youth camps, family camps are popular among Christians. Many of these camps invite and use evangelists as drawing cards, as bait, as lures, if you please, to get folks to attend the camps, their names and pictures being displayed prominently in the flyer, which is sent out to churches announcing the upcoming summer's camp schedule. The bigger, more famous, more plush camps often require or acquire, I should say pay for, the services of the more popular and well-known evangelists. Let me ask you a question, friend. Why are these evangelists so well-known? Why are they so in demand? Why are they so popular? It, it, is it because these men are well-known and popular due to the many thousands of lost souls they've led to salvation through their evangelistic efforts? Or is it because of the preaching reputation they've garnered over the years by preaching in the churches of the land to already saved people? Well, friends, we would assume that most of the people who frequent these Christian camps are Christians. That is, they're already saved, not in need of saving from hell. They may be in need for or desiring to be revived, however. And as we understand, the American evangelist preaches to save people for the purpose of spiritual revival. Huh. American evangelists sometimes are used in other similar kinds of preaching venues, such as marriage enrichment seminars, personal spiritual enrichment seminars, men-only meetings, financial seminars, or almost any type or kind of seminar which may utilize a particular knowledge or strength or ability of the evangelist. We would assume that most of the attendees at these Christian-oriented meetings and seminars are already saved people, not in need of being saved from hell. These folks may need or desire revival, however, or they may be in need of some special teaching that a particular evangelist has experience and knowledge concerning. Often an evangelist will be the main speaker, preacher, at a Christian school retreat held usually just after the beginning of the school year. If a Christian school has other kinds of activities designed to gain support for the school, such as Spirit Week or various kinds of fundraising school carnivals and so on, the services of an evangelist are often sought. We would assume that most of the children at these Christian schools are saved already, not in the need of being saved from hell. These kids may need to be revived spiritually, however, and the American evangelist does preach revival meetings. Bible colleges across the land make well and often use 
uh, and often use evangelists in many and varied extracurricular or expanded curricular activities that they provide for their students. Here's an example. They may invite an evangelist to teach a series of month-long classes on missions or evangelism or eschatology or revival-style preaching. Well, we would assume that most of the students to whom the evangelist would be preaching or teaching would be Christians, not in need of being saved from hell. Oh, by the way, he's paid, of course. Evangelists are always a good drawing card for churches which sponsor events designed for specific purposes. For example, the church wishes to demonstrate its patriotism to the local community. Well, then it may sponsor a well-advertised several days-long or week-long series of meetings focused on patriotism. A special patriotic evangelist may be the highlighted preacher or several well-known patriotic evangelists may come by to preach. A church may sponsor a preacher boy club and invite an evangelist to come preach to the boys, encouraging them to become preachers themselves. Maybe he'll even put on a preaching workshop for them so they can learn some of the tricks of the trade. The preacher boys may have a preaching competition while the evangelist is there, judged by himself and the pastor. Maybe award ribbons are distributed. He may even take a few of the neo-preachers out to the street corners, encouraging them to preach in public. Or before the evangelist leaves, the pastor may have the boys who earned the first and second and third place ribbons during the preaching contest preach their award-winning sermons to the congregation. Remuneration is usually offered to the evangelist for this evangelistic service. There are some few evangelists who tailor their methods to specific needs or according to particular talents and abilities which they own. For example, David Gibbs, Esquire, is a lawyer. He's a Christian to boot. His life work has been oriented to assist America's rebellious churches as they attempt to navigate the maze of men's laws, governing them thoroughly and through unscriptural church government incorporation and federal IRS tax-exempt status. Mr. Gibbs has billed himself as a legal missionary. I was unable to find this term in the Bible as regards evangelists, but since we know that evangelists are missionaries, I can understand Mr. Gibbs' rationale if he truly believes he's doing missionary work among the churches he serves. He does help them to perpetuate their rebellion against Jesus Christ their only true head. Mr. Gibbs's service, by the way, is not free. The churches where he performs his legal missionary service pay for this service. In fact, Mr. Gibbs has managed to convince many churches that they should send him a monthly gift of money to keep him on the legal missionary circuit. It's sort of like a Christian lawyer retainer fee, assuring that he'll be there for them if they have need of his services. Hmm. Other evangelists narrow the focus of their preaching to just one or two subjects. For example, there's a fairly well-known evangelist among a group of Bible-believing churches who preaches almost exclusively on eschatology, the study of the last days, and what the Bible reveals through the last time's prophecies. How this narrowed focus could be construed as preaching the gospel 
a real thing that real evangelists are supposed to do? I don't know. And this man has a regular set of churches where he visits over and over, year after year, preaching on the same subjects. I once heard a man who visited a church I attended present himself as a musical evangelist. He was a singer. He had a wonderful voice and sang well. After he sang to the church for 30 minutes or so, he preached a sermonette. I was unable to find the term musical evangelist in the Bible, but this man did definitely sing, and he did preach, so I assume he believed that qualified him to be what he billed himself as. Almost all the folks in our church were saved, as far as I was aware, but surely some of us needed to be revived. He was paid for his service. A fair number of American evangelists do augment their preaching with music. Often it is the family of the evangelist who provide the musical part of the evangelism practiced by this pe- these people. We come back from break here in just a few minutes. I'll mention a man by name whose family is probably well-known by some that are listening to this broadcast this evening. He has been a musical evangelist for a number of years and perpetuates his, quote, American evangelism, end of quote, by the musical talents of his family. You know, there are a lot of people out there today, friend, that think that just because they have a bunch of children that play instruments and they ride around in a bus, that that qualifies them to do the work of the evangelist. And they have a number of different places that they run to on a regular basis where people expect them to come, where people are prepared for them, and where people are prepared to pay the assigned fee that they feel they must ask for in order that their needs be met. Hmm. You see, there's lots of unknown things out there today, my friend. Lots of activities. Lots of things that take place in the name of the Lord, in the name of the church, in the name of the Bible. And yet, as we compare them to what the scriptures have to say, we begin to realize that they're claiming something that's not true. Really? Let me ask you a question before we go to break. Do you really think God needs our suggestions? Do you really think God needs us to tweak his operation that it might work better? That's a question I want you to think about. Either it's God's way or it's man's way. And when man tries to direct God's way in man's way, It's destined for failure, my friend. Destined for failure. You stay tuned to the second half of the Covenanters Call.
realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Welcome back to the second half of the Covenanters Call. Let me remind you to be a supporter of American Voice Radio. You have that opportunity. You can either go to the old main page or the new main page of the website, and you have the opportunity to donate there. We encourage you to do that for the sake of the broadcasting network. Uh, the Lord takes care of us and supplies for us, and uh, 
He's done it now for over 10 years. We figure when he stops supplying, it's time to get off the radio waves. But uh, I would encourage you to think about that. Lots of good programming on here. There's probably things on this broadcasting network that you don't agree with. And some that you may agree with are people on this broadcasting network that don't agree with each other. But, hey, that's what America is all about. And uh, you better be thankful for the opportunity that you have to listen in. I would love to hear from you this week. It's been a while since I've heard from anyone, but I know you're out there. I get some responses in the chat room, and uh, I, I appreciate it. I uh, appreciate it when my brother-in-law shows up, and uh, he is in there as we speak. He, uh, he is the only Italian in our family in my generation, although now we have one in the next generation who has perpetrated himself to to uh, put out some partial Italians into the next generation. But, uh, hey, you know, those that's life. But uh, appreciate everybody in there. Appreciate Nunya and Spudman and LT, uh, a friend that lives not too far away. Jeff's in there, Frank and, and myself, and we encourage you to come in. But uh, appreciate everybody being in there, and uh, we would love to hear from you. Write to me, Pastor Mike Hoover, 2569 North State Highway 337, in Orleans, Indiana, 47452. Drop me an email. The Muggy On at Clean Internet. Let me spell that for you. T H E M O G O L L O N at C L E A N I N T E R dot net. The Muggy On at Clean Internet. I said, where in the world did you come up with that that kind of an email address? Well, we uh, pastored the church out there in Payson, Arizona, for a little over 18 years, right at the, or just not far from the, the base of the Mugion Rim, and uh, adopted that a number of years ago, and we just carried it on with us. But you can email us or give us a phone call at number 812-653-5578. Let me remind you uh, of the upcoming ELC meeting, the first full week of June. It will be at the Cornerstone Historic Baptist Church up there in Union City, Indiana, where Keith Hoover is the pastor, and uh, looking forward to a great time with preachers from across the country, uh, men that understand the 501c3 issue and men that uh, do not participate in the 501c3. Uh, that's the way it is with our church here in southern Indiana. You say, uh, well, uh, uh, well, don't you have to? Uh, well, no, you don't have to. And uh, you say, well, is it against the law? No, it's not. it's not against the law what we do, but if it ever became against the law, we would just have to be lawbreakers because we ought to obey God rather than man. That's what the scriptures say. But uh, we, uh, we are not looking for a tax, tax break. Our church is not tax exempt. It is tax immune and uh, based upon not only the Constitution, but more importantly, the Word of God. And uh, we just serve the Lord. He just supplies and takes care of us and takes uh, he keeps keeps things going, and we just praise the Lord for the opportunity. But uh, there'll be all kind of preachers like that up there, the 6th, 7th, 8th, and 9th of uh, June. So put that on your calendar. Remember, 15, 16, 17, and 18 of May, Brother Ben Wharton will be with us. Then this Sunday, uh, Missionary Pete Heisey from uh, Romania uh, to the Romanian Gypsies uh, will be with us. So we're looking forward to a, a good time uh, in Lord. Uh, we were talking before the break about um, musical evangelists. Okay, let me give you a good example. And I've known of these people for years. The Gordon Sears family uh, is a good example. Uh, Brother Sears had several children who learned how to sing and play various instruments. They became a vital part of his evangelism for many years. 
They accompanied their dad as he preached to churches across the land. This man and his family, no doubt, were a blessing to many Christians for many, many decades. Okay? Uh, I know churches that I was a part of were certainly blessed by his family's music and his preaching. Although, as I recall, the man preached about music and not salvation. Uh, At least in that particular time, there was no great need for salvation message, however, because the church I was in was a church made up primarily of saved people, gathered together for what was really a revival meeting. You may have seen and heard a young aspiring American evangelist evangelist, as he visited your church with his growing family. Uh, Often the children are taught to sing and play musical instruments at a very young age. It's a joy to see these young families as they perform their music before the father-husband preaches. These versions of the American Evangelist are fairly common among Bible-believing churches. This method provides the main source of the family income. Uh, One well-known evangelist I heard brings with him a man he calls his music man. In fact, uh, the evangelist's wife and his music man's wife round out a foursome as they travel and evangelize. The evangelist preaches powerful, energetic, evangelistic, and revival-type messages, while his wife and the music man's wife teach the women and children in another part of the church. The music man will lead the church choir in singing several special songs before each preaching session, and he provides music himself as an extra part of the session. This wonderful preaching and uplifting music occurred in our church where most of the folks were already saved from hell. We did indeed benefit from the revival style of preaching. Friends, the American evangelist can come in just about any color, any hue or ministry presentation that you desire. He's very flexible in his appearance. For example, um, I heard a preacher told me of a church he once attended where a well-known evangelist settled there for a while. He was presented to the church family by the senior pastor as the staff evangelist. Now, this was a fairly large church with a membership of over a thousand. Therefore, in a perverted way and manner of modern-day institution of church businesses, there was a staff. The senior pastor had a few lesser pastors under him, for there was absolutely no way he could pastor all these people as God's Word requires. Additionally, there was a Christian school at the church which hired many teachers and auxiliary employees. Since the evangelist was named by the pastor as the staff evangelist, the question arose in my mind as to what this man's function would be as part of the staff. As far as I know, he never evangelized the staff. He was not a regular preacher at the church, although he and his family attended there for a few months. I came to assume that perhaps the church was his home base for his preaching operations in other parts of the country. Perhaps other large churches hire or employ or take on staff evangelists. I couldn't find the title of staff evangelist in the Bible, but this man did travel around from church to church preaching as most American evangelists do for church revivals. Yes, he was paid for his preaching. The mode of travel and the preaching platform is somewhat varied for these American evangelists who go from church to church to preach. A new, novice, or young, fresh-from-college American evangelist may travel from church to church in his used car or his minivan or his SUV. He may haul his young wife with him to play the piano or teach the church ladies in the afternoons after he has preached because evangelism often becomes a family endeavor. Occasionally, we find a lone evangelist who 
chooses to leave his wife at home as he visits from church to church preaching. Often the wife stays at home because of her ill health, or she may have other family or church responsibilities which supersede her scriptural responsibility to be at her husband's side. As an American evangelist becomes more well-known and is desired by more churches than receives an increasingly larger sum, he may purchase a motorhome or a bus in which to travel from church to church. It's sort of a status thing among American evangelists to graduate from used car to motorhome. But the greatest status change is when one achieves the notoriety, garners the greatest demand from large churches, and secures such a national reputation that he may have his travel expenses paid by those churches in the form of airline tickets. He's picked up at the airport, whisked to the church where he preaches his set of days or nights, and then is returned to the airport for his flight home or to his next preaching engagement. There are, no doubt, very few American evangelists in this last category. Paul, the evangelist, may have envied such extravagant treatment. Or would he? Pretense. The element of fraud necessary for the crime to be called such is present among the ranks of American evangelists. Whether he culpably and with malice aforethought insinuates pretense into his ministry is really not the issue, friend. Most of the men who call themselves evangelists in America fall far short of the biblical scriptural requirements. Perversion of the gift and perversion of the name, Ephesians 4, is the crime. The pretense is found in the act of calling the crime evangelism. Almost all American Christians act as if the crime and the attending pretense do not exist. This attitude of passive denial is proof of the fraud. It is proof that the fraud is and has been successfully perpetrated. This idea of fraud is illustrated to us in a myriad of ways in our everyday life. For example, if one stops at the lumberyard to pick up a two-by-four, believes that he is in fact getting a two-by-four, and pays good Federal Reserve notes, another apt illustration in fraud, for what he thinks is a two-by-four, he has been victimized by fraud. The fraud of the two-by-four has been successfully perpetrated upon him, and he knows it not. The lumberyard owner has sold the customer what he calls and advertises as a two-by-four, when in reality, what he has sold is not a two-by-four. Today in America, a two-by-four is really only a one-and-five-eighths thick and three-and-five-eighths wide. It's not really two inches thick and four inches wide. However, it's referred to as a two-by-four, and most people think it really is a two-by-four in size, but it's not. They believe the lie, the pretense, and they are captured by the fraud, and no one knows the better for it. The fraud of the American evangelist works the same way as the fraud of the two-by-four, or the fraud of the Federal Reserve note, which we call money. We call it a certain thing by a name or designation, which it is not, but which we accept as true. Then we conduct ourselves according to the false belief we entertain in our deceived minds. 
We really do not get an evangelist for our money, Federal Reserve notes, but we think and we believe we've got one because we don't know what the dimensions, two by four, of an evangelist really should be according to God's word. A significant reason that we do not know what the dimensions of an evangelist are is because, like the lumberyard owner, we've been told by the evangelist that we are really getting an evangelist. After all, we may reason who better than the evangelist to know what an evangelist is than the very man himself. What's worse, however, is the role of passive denial we mentioned earlier. Christians are so out of touch with thus saith the Lord, that their theological spiritual brains have been placed into neutral. Therefore, if the lumberyard owner defrauds them by selling them a pseudo two-by-four, or if the visiting preacher defrauds them by pawning himself off as an evangelist, they accept it as real, as true, as fact, and go on down the road in ignorant bliss. Let's continue the examination of the pathology, if you please, of the American evangelist. Paul, an apostle and an evangelist in the biblical sense of the name, declared in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the first part of verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade man. He also said in the same chapter, verse 14, for the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And he said in the same chapter, in verse 20, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Now these statements that Paul made in defense of his calling and work of an evangelist are important to take notice of. Terror, constraint, and reconciliation. These are the action words which energize the evangelist and relate directly to the lost person about whom Paul was speaking. Terror, because of the looming black abyss of an eternal fiery hell before the blinded eyes of the lost man. Constraint, because of the compelling, undeniable, irresistible Holy Spirit energized compulsion born out of love upon the evangelist to preach salvation to the lost man. Reconciliation. As the only solution to the lost man's problem, through the cross of Christ, the way of salvation. Now these concepts intrude upon the heart and mind of the true biblical evangelist, molding him to the calling from God to take the gospel to the lost. Now, we're making the charge in this teaching that the mindset of the American evangelist is not identical to that of Paul the Apostle regarding his so-called evangelism. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered why the number of evangelists is small and decreasing in America? Another question. Have you ever heard of the law of supply and demand? This law is not only the primary reason for the decreasing number of American evangelists, it is also the revelation of the betrayal of the pretense we spoke of earlier. Because, you see, the law of supply and demand should have nothing whatsoever to do with real biblical evangelism. Only a perverted evangelism 
would be subject to this law. In his fundamental persona, the American evangelist is nothing more than a professional preacher. The word professional implies doing a job or performing a function for money or because of money. So it is with the very great majority of American evangelists. That is, to make a living. Surely, very few American evangelists become rich or wealthy from their evangelizing. The prime motive for them to become evangelists, we hope, is not the lust for money or the hope of wealth because of their preaching. No, we must agree that the great majority of American evangelists do this thing which they refer to as evangelism because they believe they are serving God Almighty in it. But they have to eat, right? And they must provide for their families. So somehow they must figure out a way to be paid for what they do in their pretense of serving the Lord as evangelists. That's why we say they do it for the money. They certainly would not be inclined to do this thing they call evangelism for free. Most likely, a good majority of them make a comfortable or at least an adequate living from their chosen profession. A few can't make it and leave the field of evangelism after a few years of struggling financially. Of these, we may also ask, what was their motivation in the first place? And we must ask, if God called them to be evangelists, as they define the word, what is the breakdown between his calling and his provision, if the call was true? And finally, we must ask, what is the relationship between money and serving God. Let me ask that again. What is the relationship between money and serving God? Hmm. man told me a story about an evangelist that visited his church several times in the past. He was a singing evangelist, that is, one who sings in addition to his preaching. By the way, there's nothing wrong with the preacher singing. This man complained that the pastor had asked him not to return because the music he performed was not acceptable. It was too worldly. He said that he assured the pastor that he could change the style of his music to meet the standards the pastor required, but he said the pastor still refused to have him back. He was bitter. Well, what do you think? Was the man constrained by the love of Christ because of the terror of the Lord to preach the gospel? to a church full of mostly born-again people that had no need to be saved from hell? Not hardly, friend. He was constrained by his need and desire for money. That is why he was willing to change his music style. You see, he lost a church he'd counted on before for a yearly preaching gig and a yearly love offering to help sustain him in his chosen profession. He was a professional preacher. He preached for money. Certainly, he wouldn't preach for free. Now, before you get your Irish hackles up over this accusation, consider the truth regarding biblical and scriptural evangelists. First, they were constrained by the love of Christ to preach the gospel to lost people. They didn't do it for the money, nor did they do it only so long as there was sufficient or adequate livelihood as a result of or a benefit from their preaching. They did it because Jesus Christ impelled them to do it. 
They did it so the lost people might be saved. Their number one concern, humanly speaking, was the vast sea of lost people who needed to hear the gospel from their own feeble lips. True, the evangelists in the New Testament did take money from churches to support themselves. But here's the rub. The churches who gave them money were churches who supported them on the field as they took the gospel to lost people. Did you ever read in the Bible of an evangelist who went and preached to a group of lost people and then asked them for money afterward? No. The money they received from churches was sent to them, carried to them as they preached on the field to lost people. Some, like Paul, even supported themselves by working extra or odd jobs in order that they might stay on the field and preach the gospel to lost people. The salvation of lost souls is the impelling, irresistible, driving motivation for a God-called and Holy Spirit-empowered evangelist. God clearly reveals this truth to us through the life of the Apostle Paul. You see, Paul was an evangelist. Today's American evangelist has it all twisted. It's as if today's American evangelist has a tie-dyed sort of evangelism. A tie-dyed shirt is a plain shirt twisted, tied in knots, and then thrust into different colors of dye. After the shirt dries and the knots are untied, its appearance is one of confusion, disorder. You ever known of an American evangelist who went to the city park in some town on a bright, sunny Saturday afternoon, gathered a crowd of frisbee slingers, half-stoned marijuana tokers, belching beer guzzlers, hot dog grillers, dog walkers, and other park people together and preached the gospel to them and then asked them for money after he preached. Such a practice would be a tie-dyed kind of evangelism, tied in knots, twisted and sporting, clashing hues of color. You'll be hard-pressed to find an American evangelist who preaches to such a group at all, money or no money. But why would we not find an American evangelist preaching to such a group on a regular day-to-day basis? Friends, it's because the essence, the nature, the idea, the fact of true evangelism eludes the American evangelist. The construct of evangelism in his mind is tie-dyed. It's not tied to Scripture. But the illustration is only part of the tie-dying. Not number two is to find the American evangelist preaching in the churches across the land for money. But what's worse is that this man who calls himself an evangelist, that is, as defined in the Bible, one who preaches the gospel, preaches almost exclusively to church people, most of whom we must assume to be saved. Not number three. And even worse, he returns year after year to repeat the same process. Not number four. Last, this mode of operation is the mainstay of what he does, his vocation, not number five. The American evangelist is all tied up in knots, sporting, clashing colors in weird, irregular design, and passing himself off as a Rembrandt. Friends, this is the Covenanter's Call. We appreciate you tuning into the broadcast this evening. I would love to hear from you this week. You can write to me, Pastor Mike Hoover. 2569 North State Highway 337, Orleans, Indiana, 47452. Drop me an email, the on at clean internet, T-H-E-M-O-G-O, 
L-L-O-N at C-L-E-A-N-I-N-T-E-R dot N-E-T. Or feel free to give us a phone call. That number, 812-653-5578. Remember, Missionary Pete Heisey with us this Sunday. Lord willing, the middle of next month, Pastor Ben Wharton going to come up and do some preaching for our church family. To uh, not trying to have revival, just want to hear some good preaching from him. And then in the month of June, the ELC meeting up there at Cornerstone Historic Baptist Church, Union City, Indiana. We would love to see you at any of those meetings. Get an opportunity to meet you. I hear the music. My time's up. God bless you. Have a good evening. Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Alfred Addisk, and this is the American Independence Hour for Tuesday, 12th day of April, year of our Lord, 2016. <laughs> I'm going to be 71 in a couple of weeks. Um, give you my disclaimer. I am a man made in God's image as per Genesis 1, 26 through 28. I'm endowed by my Creator with certain unalienable rights, as per the second sentence of the Declaration of Independence. I'm broadcasting within the borders of the state of Texas, a member state of the Perpetual Union styled the United States of America, and I'm acting at arm's length. Again, a lot of people think that's silliness, and they might be right. But it's one of those things, you know, ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I'm telling people from the beginning of the program, if anyone wants to use this program in a way that's perhaps contrary to my best interests, I'm telling them, look, I'm a slippery character. I'm claiming the rights God gave me. And you're going to have to prove I'm not entitled to them. And once we get into that, <laughs> you know, if you wanted to mess with me, we it would it would come out in front of a jury. I don't know how you're going to pr- how you're going to persuade a jury that a man like myself does not have God-given unalienable rights. So you go through these you go through these exercises, and on the one hand, you can look at it as an overabundance of caution. On the other hand, you can look at it as an overabundance of paranoia. You know. Um, it kind of depends. If all of a sudden somebody comes down and kicks in the door, you can say, see, see, <laughs> I told you I wasn't paranoid, see? Now, on the other hand, if nobody kicks in the door, well, then maybe maybe it is an overabundance of paranoia. We'll, watch, we'll see what happens as time goes on. Uh, our co-host is Frank Steffen. Go, Frank. Hey, Al. You know... A lot of people, I don't know, I wonder how many of you people appreciate the contribution that Frank makes on this program. Uh, It is such a pleasure, and it makes it so easy for me to show up on the program knowing Frank is going to be the co-host. Frank always listens. He always pays attention. He's always right there, able to say something intelligent when I have to finally... (laughs) <laughs> come up, stop talking, and come up for air. Uh, he makes, without Frank on the program, I doubt that I could do more in an hour. And it's not just a question of Frank, you know, filling in some time when I have to when I have to take a break. That's not that's not what I'm talking about. It really is. Uh, how long have we been doing these programs, Frank? Ooh, I don't know. It's been it's a while, but it doesn't seem that long. I mean, it doesn't seem that long, but I think it's a year and a half. It could be. I mean, yeah, uh, every I, program I it, though goes really quick for me. It goes anyway. for us. Yeah, I don't know how it goes for the audience, but for us it goes. Well, bang, if we bang, could bang. just if we could just wake them up, they might know. Well, you know <laughs> how long has it been? They you know they wake up around midnight, going, "Oh man, what happened?" I was listening to those two guys and. You know. And fell right asleep. It works every time. <laughs> you know, I, I I listen to them for because I have insomnia. That's my reason yeah. <laughs> for listening. The only way I can get any sleep, and then I <laughs> I, I download the programs and I rerun them. Hey, During one the good thing though, weekend, that way I got a full night's sleep. One good thing though, you know, when people fall asleep during the show, it goes quick for them too. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> uh, 
Got anything you want to talk about? I appreciate that, by the way, Al. Thank you. Um, it's truth of the matter. I mean, I'm not, you know, I, I wouldn't say it if it wasn't true. You are an amazing co-host. Because I know how much energy it takes to sit here and listen to other people talk. And, oh, my God, when would they stop? You know, it's hard to pay attention. It takes a real talent and a kind of determination to pay attention through these programs. And I'm I'm pretty much amazed that you're able to do that. You do it consistently every single week. And uh, I well, just wanted to say, you know, I, I'm not unaware. And Well, I appreciate that. Spectacular, spectacular contribution. But, you know, the thing is, though, it it. It's easy for me because I'm interested. I want to know. I want to learn by listening and then having an opportunity to to input. I also get to learn. Yep. And hopefully that's what you know. That's what the listeners are hopefully doing anyway. Other you know, and obviously people have to be entertained. You know, or else they completely lose interest in things. But this is a learning. This is a learning experience for me too. I mean, I learn stuff on every single one of these programs. You know, you might think that I'm just coughing up a certain amount of information. No, I'm looking at things. The program forces me to dig something up that we have to talk about. All right, all right, what are we going to talk about this week? i got to find something. All right. Well, in the process of having to dig something up, it forces me to exercise my mind and actually talk about something that I may not know much about. It forces you to learn, and I enjoy that. I delight in it. Well, yeah, and there's a, a certain amount of self-defense in learning. Because if you think, oh, I'm just charmed, nothing bad ever happens to me, uh-huh. and nothing bad ever will. Well, uh-huh. yeah, that could be true, but uh, it hasn't been true for me. Uh, and I'm pr- hey, I've got things pretty well, you know, pretty good. I don't get in a whole lot of trouble, and people aren't normally af- out to get me. But it's happening. Well, they got a long list. Yeah, they do. <laughs> They've got a long list, and they can't get to everybody right now. So please be patient. Wait your turn. We're going to put you on hold right now. And I've had a couple of turns already. So you know, I mean, I can't get greedy. Well, in any case, I, I enjoy doing the program, and more than a little of that is just the contribution you make on the program. You make it easy for me. You know, last week we started doing a Tuesday night, a Tuesday evening program. We already do one from 3 to 4 Central Time, and now we're doing another one from 5 to 6 in California. And then we do this one for two hours a night. And a lot of people think that doesn't be, you know, big deal. you got to talk for four hours. How hard can it be? You know, I guess it depends. Some people may be able to talk that much forever, but average person probably can't. No. And myself. It's a it's it's hard to keep your mind screwed on straight for for full four hours of of uh, conversation, monologue, dialogue, whatever. Try to make sense out of it and it's kinda of stressful. You know, funny I didn't thing. have you around here, I couldn't do it. I think you probably could. You, you might you might have little more effort involved but it, i think well, you, i think you could myself but you know that's here or there but you know what you're saying is is true because years ago in the chat room somebody was in there and uh and there was a conversation started going on that you know how hard is it to be a 
talk show host. Mm-hmm. Seems pretty easy. All you do is blah, 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 get up there. and So, you know, they went on for a while, and I decided, okay, you know what? I'm in a position where I can actually do something. And I said, okay. And I announced it, and I put it in the chat room, and I put it on the website, and I told, I said, we're having a contest. And I'm going to give an hour a week of airtime to somebody. Actually, it was an hour a night. Yeah, to somebody, and I said, "Look, if you win this contest, you got you got your own show for an hour a night, every night, Monday through Friday, and you got to get on here and do an hour. You can even have guests. You know, Is that's that okay. a reward or a punishment." Well, it turned out that you know somebody won, uh-huh. and they were happy, and they said, "Okay, good, great." You know, and the first show they did, they had a guest, and it was fine. Then the next show, they were supposed to have a guest, and he didn't show up. It wasn't so fine. Then the third and the, the third night was it, okay? Yeah. Yeah. And this, he was a man, and he decided, and he, he said, hey, you know what? This isn't what I thought it'd be. I thought this would be a lot easier, and it's, it, mm-hmm. it's, it's harder than I ever thought it would be. And, you know, and that was the end of that. And that's the truth. It's just not, it's okay. It's like, look. Get in, a, get in a place and go stand up in front of a thousand or two people. Yeah. You know, I mean, you might know your stuff really well, and, and but once you get up there in front of those thousands of people, it's a whole different thing. It's like people who know, man, I got my argument down, I have this down, and they go to court and the judge says, oh, yeah? And it's like, you know, you have nothing to say anymore, and, you know, you're getting fitted for your orange jumpsuit. Mm-hmm. And that's it. It's different. Got a tailor. You got a bailiff. You got the bailiff, the court clerk, <laughs> and the tailor. Yep. Who is taking your measurements while you're standing there, measuring your sleeves and length of your pants. So he's got, you know. Yep. And and it's just that's the way things are. It's like, look, this isn't, you know, things look easy. A lot of things look easy. Yeah. So you try them, and then ooh, that's not that's not as easy as it looks, and and probably there's most everything's like that. It really requires you got to discipline your mind in order to get involved in these kinds of conversations, because my experience is I haven't met more than a couple of people in my entire life who can speak coherently for more than fifteen minutes without starting to contradict themselves. You let them talk for 15 minutes, and they're going to tell you the earth is flat. They're going to tell you the earth is round, and and within 15 minutes, they'll also tell you the earth is flat or maybe cubical. And there is no contradictions. And if you're going to speak the way we try to on this program and others and other people are doing the same, you're going to try to keep the contradictions out out uh, out of your speech. And maybe you succeed, and maybe you don't. But you've got to you've got to be organized. You've got to be yeah. able to organize your thoughts in a way that well, you can communicate them without three, four, five minutes later saying something exactly the opposite. You know, and people say, "What a moron!" Well, that's one thing to be on the radio and have people go, "What a moron!" It's a yeah. whole other thing to be in court and have the judge going, "Was that perjury? Was that, did you just lie? Do I have to send you to jail now, or what?" Mm-hmm. You know, it, it. You know, things can get a lot worse than just people thinking you're an idiot. Well, there's. I agree with that. It's not. It, it, if I was afraid of people thinking I was an idiot, I would never <laughs> got into this because they've been thinking that for a long time. I mean, I was. Oh no, I'm out of here. Yeah, and go back to roofing. Made some yeah. good. Money. Um, <laughs> 
you know, for what it's worth, you know, back in the 80s, working all by myself, just mentioning roofing, back in the 80s, I used to average about 10 grand a month working all by myself and only about 20 hours a week. Yep. All I did was roof maintenance, roof repairs, all right? I had a nuclear moisture detector, a... Uh, an infrared scanner, and finally a capacitance instrument that would determine all of which would give you different clues to how much moisture was in the roof. And once you understood where the moisture was, you could pretty much identify where the leak was, repair it with a minimum amount of effort and expense, and uh, be on your way. Customers were happy. I didn't do any advertising. Everything was word of mouth. At the time, I was pretty sure I was one of the two or three best roof maintenance people in the world. Certainly in this country, mm-hmm. maybe in the world. And was, you know, not for all roofs, but for commercial roofs. But I did well. I had his own $17,000 a month. That was a lot of money. Yeah. It's still a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> still a lot of money. I had a $17,000 a month working by myself back in, I don't know, 87, 88, someplace in that neighborhood. I don't recall clearly. But then I got started on publishing a little newsletter. And that's when it really started rolling. That's when the trouble started. <laughs> yeah. Right? I found it. I fell in love with that rather than publishing, rather than roofing. I actually like publishing better. Only thing is, in the first couple of months after I started trying to publish that magazine, I averaged something like three, or $400 a month gross income. I went from making ten grand a month down to making something like five, six hundred dollars a month. And I stuck with it through the first year and didn't make much more than that. That's all it was. And the second year I made a little bit more. Third year, and actually the revenue started it was doubling every year, but it started out at nothing. Well, fifty percent to hundred percent per year. Mm-hmm. Started out at nothing. And we finally got into the sixth year. And I was on the verge, and I expected that I was going to be making a hundred grand a year, working out of my spare bedroom. I had published in a magazine which I loved, and then everything just just died, and uh, you know it never did recover for me after. I mean, it wasn't just me; it was. Oh yeah, I I was around for for that because the Anti Shyster is one of those magazines that got me started on the whole road I'm on. I mean, Anti Shyster, Media Bypass, uh, Criminal yep. Politics. You know those those mm-hmm. magazines, Americans Bulletin, all those things. That was a newspaper, but you know those those got me up to speed. Yeah. On what's going on exactly? Because mm-hmm. something bad's going on. I mean, I I, I knew enough to know that that something stinks around here. I'm not sure what that smell is, yep. but something stinks. And, you know, those your mag, your magazine and the others got me up to speed to going, okay, at least to a point where I could get started. You know? I understand and, that. You know, it's and, still ongoing. Same well, thing it is. That's, that's the thing. It's still ongoing. And, you know, it's not enough to I, – I found out it's not enough to learn things. You've got to actually somewhere along the line – and I'm not encouraging anybody to go out and look for trouble, but if you're if you're interested in learning about this, you're already looking for trouble. You know, that's my view. And and somewhere along the line, you got to put what you learn to use somewhere, somehow. It doesn't have to be anything monumental or or you know world changing. 
And start with traffic tickets. That's what I encourage people to you do. Know, because... A lot of people. You know, it's if you're willing, you, that's intimidating for most people, and that certainly was for me at one point in my life. Then you get to a point where, oh, wait, this is only a traffic ticket. It's not that big a deal. I can be Perry by Mason itself. Here. That is, you lose some of your fear and anxiety. Right? And in, in retrospect, you think, gee, that was no big deal. I got over my anxiety about traffic tickets. But it's a big deal because you got over anxiety. It wasn't like you got over fear and you realized, wait a second, wait a minute now. I actually think I can handle some of this stuff. I think I'm beginning to understand what's going on here. All by itself, that's that's a profound moment. Yeah. I mean, when you find the courage and the and the ability just to stand up and speak. Yeah. Remarkable with that. Well, yeah, and I, you know, I was always pretty much, if I had to go to court, I was pretty much angry about it. You know, so I didn't really have that fear thing. It's like, man, I got other things I want to be doing, and this ain't it. And but here I got to be, and you know, and yeah, and you're threatening to find me or put me in jail besides messing with my day. Yeah. But I didn't have any. I didn't have any knowledge. I didn't have any knowledge. I uh-huh. the first, honestly, the first thing I did, and this is not something I'm real proud of, but it did happen, and it's the way it is, and or the way it was, and. I knew nothing, but I lived in a town up in the mountains in, in, in Pennsylvania, and I it was I had just gotten out of the military, and I was basically taking some time off, <laughs> and uh, that time off involved a lot of uh, drinking, and uh, I would get a ticket for being you know intoxicated in public. I mean, a cop would just walk up and hand it to me and walk away. And I thought, okay, you got me. You're right. I am. And I'd go down and I'd say, well, I don't have any money. So they put me in jail for two or three days and I'd get out. But then one time, I I went into this bar just to go meet somebody who didn't show up. So I go in there and nobody, you know, guy in there. So I leave. And here's the cop. He hands me a ticket. And I'm going, hey, I haven't even had anything to drink. I don't care. Here's your ticket. And I thought, okay, that's it. I'm fighting this one. I had never fought one of them. I'd always mm-hmm. showed up and said, oh, look, I don't have any money, so I'll just do the time in two days or something, you know. Three days, two days, time served, you know, whatever, good time. And this time I said, that's it, I'm fighting this. And I went in there and I said, I want a lawyer. See, you can't have a lawyer. There's, You know, this is a fine. So what if I don't pay the fine? Well, then we'll put you in jail. Then I want a lawyer. Fine, fine, fine. They gave me a public defender. I never forget this guy. He had, like, really, really red hair and a really, really red beard. And he was absolutely worthless. Yeah. So I go in there, and I don't know anything, right? I, I mean, I haven't done any study. And I don't know anything. I just know, look, this isn't right because, look, I don't mind getting a ticket for something I did, but now you're just giving me tickets just because I'm around, and that's not going to work. So I go, well, blah, 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 and... My lawyer says nothing. And the, the, the magistrate, what they call it, says, well, is there any questions? And he goes, no. I said, well, I have, I have a question. She goes, well, okay. And I asked the cop, I said, well, what was my blood alcohol level? Well, we didn't give you a breath. Then how do you know I was drunk? Well, my experience. And I'm like, you hang around with a lot of drunks, do you? 
And it's like, she says, okay, that's enough. And then she scolded me yep. and said, but I'm going fi- to dismiss this case. Mm-hmm. And I walked. Yeah. And I knew nothing. <laughs> it, it was just a matter of, I, I don't know, I guess guile. And guile alone, no knowledge. Just, look, this isn't right, and I'm, I'm going to stand up and say, hey, no, this isn't right. You're going to have to prove it. And they didn't want to. They didn't want to go there. They thought it was going to be easy. They thought it was going to just be, you know, okay, fine. Let's slap them around a little bit, and that's it. See, but this is the thing. Try to, I want to encourage people to, look, if something isn't right, whether you know anything or not, you need to stand up, and it's best yeah. if you learn something and and you you know usually have some time to do that. But I mean, you've got to you've got to have the something in you to say no. Look, you know what? I'm just not going to lay down for something that's not right. It's one thing to you know punish me for something I've done. It's another thing just to punish me for kicks, and that isn't right. And you've got to start with the desire to stand up for that. Because all the knowledge doesn't matter if you're not willing to do that. It starts with the, well, when you're willing to stand up and you speak up, you're willing to defend yourself. Now, all by itself, it shows courage uh, or anger or frustration or whatever. But they understand that next time they bring you in, that's going to cost them some money if only they're going to have to spend the time to put an attorney in there and uh, there's going to be time. You're going to do better. Once you get started on this, I'll bet they know that. Mm-hmm. I'll bet they know that the first time somebody comes in and stands up to fight a seatbelt violation or whatever, they get a mark on his record that says, don't mess with this guy. He's going to cost us twenty grand." Next time we bring him in here, or maybe only two grand, but he can't run a business, and that's all they're doing. You can't impose two hundred dollar fines if it costs you two thousand dollars to collect the two hundred. No. You can't stay in business with that model. So, what I'm curious about: how many times after you stood up and and defied these people, how many times after that did they give you tickets? Actually, I don't I don't remember any more of that. That's what I'm curious they tried about. Some, they tried some other things that never worked. This time, I don't but, give them a ticket. Yeah. Just thump the hell out of him. Yeah, Get well. that nightstick out there and, you know, put a couple lumps on his cranium. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, you know, I, I have to admit, back in those days at that time in my life, you know, I deserved some of that. You know, I mean, I was I was a bit out of control and... uh you know, I, <laughs> you know, so I, I mean, I can't complain about, it. I can't cry about that, you know, uh, but you know, when it isn't right, it isn't right. When, it, when I'm not doing anything wrong, I don't expect to be punished, you know, and when I am, well, maybe, but not well, so much I anymore. Know, <laughs> you were saying you were a little out of control back in the day. Yeah. All right. You imply that today <laughs> you are in control. Are you really in control, or are you just getting too old to make as much trouble as you did when you were younger? I just, I, I would, I would, I would categorize it as less out of control. Uh, yeah, you know, there's there comes a point in time when the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Well, that's true. You can't make as much trouble as you did when you were a kid. Well, that's true. You'd like to. Well, I don't have anything against it, but uh, I'm sorry. I get too old for it. Well, and that's the other thing, too. You know, some of that stuff was a lot of fun to do, you know, even though it caused, you know, trouble for me. It was still fun, but now, you know. It, well, it was interesting, it's not too. not fun anymore, you know. I mean, <laughs> it's like it's like going into a bar and picking a fight with everybody in there. That was fun, you know, when you were younger. But now it's just really painful, and it, it doesn't wear mm-hmm. off real fast. And uh, Plus, you, you have to depend on Obamacare. Yeah, you know, there's all kinds of reasons not to do that anymore. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's just uh, different and you know, I, hopefully, everybody, you know, you, you do things, you grow up, you go through your life, and, and hopefully you're learning something along the way about, well, okay, well, that you know, doesn't work. If it's, kind of, if it's getting less interesting to you right now, and I mean going to courts, you need to do something to make it more interesting. What do you think you could do to make court more interesting? Oh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I think maybe doing... Learn how to counterclaim. Oh, absolutely. Now, that, that would be... That puts the fun back in. It's a... <laughs> yippee! It's it's fun going to court again, because now I'm not just playing defendant. I'm suing the SOBs. Yep. Now you got something to live for. You can put a little put a little spring in your step. You understand? I, I agree. I have thought... You know, and I, I just haven't I haven't sat down and studied the uh, counterclaim thing yet, but I do and in, I intend to eventually, and uh, hopefully yeah, it won't be one thing. of those things where I'm I'm forced to do it. You know, I'd like to do it at my own leisure, but you know, who knows? But I think that is a great uh, a great way of because there's so many things to counterclaim because they they generally they generally do everything wrong. Yeah, no. You know, and I don't mean they make mistakes. I mean they violate your rights. Mm-hmm. You know, almost everything they do violates your rights, violates their oath, violates their policy. Viol- I mean, they're just they just screw up constantly, and they figure out ah, what the heck, and they do get away with it for the most part because most people don't even know they're messing it up. Yeah, I know our ignorance is so profound. I mean, when a cop pulls you over and says, "Well, uh, you know, uh, blah blah blah," and uh, oh, by the way, where are you going? Where were where are you coming from? Uh, people generally go, well, I was at the what do you call it, and I'm going to wherever, and uh, and they and you know they just give it up. They got no right to ask you that. No, this is a traffic stop. Here's your paperwork. I don't know that they have no right to ask, but I don't think you have a. But the, the right. question is, okay. do you have a duty to answer? That's 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 better. Point. I mean, I can ask you if your parents were born on Mars. <laughs> But do you have a duty to respond to my question? That's better. That's that's a much better way of putting it because I have no obligation to tell you that. Here's what's required. Here's the the license, the registration, the insurance. You know, or here's an explanation why I don't have it and why I don't need it. And now we, you know, I I, I don't do that now anymore because <laughs> that's something else that just you know got to be. I don't know. Not interesting, not, you know, I don't know. I felt, you know, when I first started doing it, I thought, well, you know what? I'm going to do this, and if I can win a couple of these, why? People will see, and they'll know, and they'll go, wow, hey, that guy might be on to something. Maybe we should do it, too, and then we'd have a movement, and, you know, and, well, let me check the news. No, that didn't happen. So, you know, after 11 years, I just got to be where, okay, look, I've... I've 
I've had this dismissed four times. You know, I've never been convicted of driving without a license. And okay, well, so what would I win? You know, I didn't win anything. I won another trip around the uh, Ferris wheel. You know, and that gets, you know, everybody likes Ferris wheels, but nobody wants to live on one. So why do you do it? Well, I, why did I do it in the first place was because uh, I, I, I believed what I was doing. I, and I still do. I mean, I still do believe that the driver license is a completely commercial instrument. And unless you're involved in that activity, you're not to be regulated. I really believe believe that through everything I've I think there's read. you know I'm looking at it from a territorial perspective. Yep. I think they only issue the driver's licenses within the territories, and if you've got one, it's evidence that you're in the territory. I, I think mean, that's what it, rather than the state of the union. Um, that's my belief. Whether it's true or false, you know, we can speculate. Well, on and that because. could be. And I I just had never thought of that at the time. I just was focused on the. No, I understand. What is this for? Well, it's for commercial activity. Yeah. And if I'm not engaged in that commercial activity, you've got no, you have no right to regulate me. Well, what does commercial activity include? Well, now there's another, you know, there's something else that I had a limited, a more limited view of than I do now. I mean, the commercial activity that I looked at was. Okay, this is a registered passenger vehicle. I have a license to operate a passenger vehicle. You know, and I'm insured for limited liability as a commercial entity would be. So, you know, I mean, on its face, a cop looks at all these things and says, I don't know, I've got to figure you're involved in commerce. Yep. You know, and unless you have something to say... Uh, which I did on that level, which was, look, you see any passengers in here? No, just because I'm allowed to be engaged in commerce doesn't mean I'm engaged in commerce now. And if I'm not engaged in commerce now, you have nothing to regulate now. Wait until I got some passengers in here. And so you've tried them. that argument. How many times has it succeeded? Well... Four times in court and two times, um, actually, the, uh, well, one time was uh, two deputies and another time was a state trooper, and those two times, they declined to ticket me. Mm -hmm. And then the other four times, I did get ticketed and had to, I sent in paperwork and, you know, uh, dismissed. And one of the things that occurs to me about in being engaged in commerce I wonder if it implicates interstate commerce. When they say you're engaged in commerce, well, commerce where? Among the several states or commerce in the territorial states? I think, I think it's interstate commerce, and that's just a suspicion. It's the sort of thing, if I were going to make that argument, that would be one element of the argument. It wouldn't be my only thing, the only thing I relied on, but I'd be saying I am not engaged in internet in interstate commerce. I'm not in, I am not all of my acts took place within the borders of a state of the union. Right. That would be that would be one of the arguments that I'd try. I think the state of the union uh argument and the territorial or district or whatever it is that they, you know, the real name is. Yep. Uh I think is I I think 
really going on. I just didn't, you know, I didn't no, I see that at the time. Uh, even though I had read, you know, the federal zone. Yeah. You know, and I had read Mitch Bodolesky. Yeah. And Paul I had, Andrew. What is it? Mitchell. Mm-hmm. No. Isn't that right? His real name, Paul Andrew Mitchell? I'm not sure. I just know the, the name of the, you know. Mitch Modaleski was, was a pen name he used on the book. Right. But he's done, you know, he has been at it for, I, when did he write The Federal Zone? Gosh. Early uh, 90s? Yeah, at least. I'd say, I, yeah, it might have been before. It might have been the 80s for all I know. But I saw it, the first time I saw it was, I'm going to guess, 93, 94, something like that. And I even met him. And he tried to explain what he was talking about, and I was just as dumb as a box of rocks. I didn't get it. I didn't really begin to understand it until oh, around 99, 98, 99, before I began to understand the fundamental idea. Um, some of the stuff, it's like, it's like Harry Potter, practically. It's like teaching people how to cast a spell. Yeah. Right? And people, oh, that doesn't work. You can't, you can't, that doesn't work. Yeah, actually it does. Not always, but sometimes it does. And it's not just an idea where it's hard to understand. It's hard to believe. Well, it's like people tell you, they go, well, that, you know, and I, I've had, gosh, I don't even know how many people. And, you know, it's not some things people say, you just shake your head and go, you're an idiot and, yep. and walk off. And other times you go, well, you know, I, I understand what you're saying. When they go, well, look. How can this possibly be happening? Are you telling me everybody, do you realize how many thousands, how many tens of thousands of people would have to be in on this conspiracy for this to go on like this and yada, yada, yada? And it's like, well, I understand where, why people would say that, because that's yeah, what it seems, seems like. You know, it that, seems well, impossible to how me. How do this? You know, a lot of the things I've embraced, I've thought for years, they still seem impossible to me. But I've he, been looking for evidence to the contrary. I would welcome, all right, being able to see evidence. Oh, you're wrong, and here's why. See, look here, look here, look here. You see what you're even say, and it's contrary to this, 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 and this. I don't ever get that. And I've been looking at, I've been looking at, at for that kind of evidence to prove I'm wrong for 20 years, and I'm not able to find it. Well, I mean, there's some things I, I'm, I grow and I see that. Oh, I, I was, but in terms of fundamentals and the rest of it. I can't find the evidence that will release me from the obligation to try to tell what I think might be the truth. Well, yeah, and when people used to say that to me, I didn't really have a good answer or come back to it. I'm like, well, yeah, that's, that, that is odd, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but how many people do you think really have to be in on this conspiracy? See, that's the whole thing. Not that many, because... I don't think so either. There is something, and, and people... This, this is my conclusion that I came to anyway, and I could be wrong or right or whatever, but it's something to think about anyway, that people are aware of how clandestine operations are done. You've all seen Tom Clancy's movies and read his books and, you know, other people write stuff like this. So everybody's aware of these clandestine things. And what they do is they compartmentalize to where nobody knows the whole picture. They Not just, only that, they, they just train. know their job. They train. That's all this. They're just doing their job. They've been trained 
You see the vehicle, you turn on the emergency lights, you pull over the vehicle, you ask to see the driver's license, the proof of insurance registration, and if this, this, this happens, you arrest him, issue him a ticket, do whatever you got to do. It's monkey see, monkey do, but not monkey understand. And you can put people out on the street who don't have a clue to what they're doing. And the Supreme Court has ruled recently that law enforcement officers don't have to understand the law they're enforcing. Well, now, how right. the hell can you under, how can you enforce a law that you don't even understand what it is? But then again, Al, how can you expect people when you have a hiring policy of nobody over 90 IQ gets to be I a understand. cop? How can you expect those people to understand the law when lawyers will go? And that's know. part of the deal. I think it's part of the reason why the police are looking for less intelligent police officers. At least some departments are. I don't know how extensive that that search is for for dummies. We're looking for a few dumb a few dumbbell uh, you know dumbbells. Yeah, yeah. Um, they can't. You don't have to worry about them figuring out what's going on. All right. You don't have to worry about them suddenly discovering. Oh my gosh. You know, like what's the IRS agent who was a former special agent. And I can't think of his name. It starts but he with does a B, radio. doesn't it? Barrister. Or, uh, uh, I had to be able Joe, to think of it. Joe Bannister. Bannister. That's it. Yeah. He's smart enough to look around after a period of time. Somebody said, "This is you guys are doing this, that, and the other, and it's wrong. And he said, well, this is crazy. That That's not true. And the guy said, read this, read this, read this in the Internal Revenue Code. And he read it, and he realized, my God, we are doing things that are wrong. Now, an unintelligent man can't read the code for himself and figure out what's happening. He's just cannon fodder. He will do as he's told as long as the check, as long as the cash, he can, you know, yep. the, the check will clear the bank. Count him in. You don't have to worry about him seeing the truth from the inside and blowing the whistle. Well, if you hire a bunch of people without any noses, you don't have to worry about them smelling that stench. That's exactly right. You know, it's like, well, I don't smell anything. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't have a nose. Mm-hmm. See, you know, I mean, that's the thing. And, you know, so, no, and then you get to the next level where, okay, the attorneys might know a little more than the cop, but they don't know that much. And the judges, no. you, you can tell. Look, if you, if you do go and, you, and you, you figure something out and you can present it, and it's something that hasn't been done. You want to do cookie cutter stuff, and you're going to have a problem. But if you come up with something, your own thing, you go in there, and you're going to find out the judge doesn't know either. And that's why yeah. he's going to say, oh, continuance, uh, we'll be right back. And he'll go mm-hmm. make a call to somebody who does know. That's right. You know, and that sounds conspiratorial and uh, mm-hmm. crazy and paranoid and all that, but I've seen this happen. So, you know, I mean, it's it's not like I'm I'm just, oh, boy, yeah, I saw this on TV. No, I've, I've seen this happen right in front of me, you know. So. I've seen an advisor participate, not participate, he sat off to the side in a jury box um, in a trial I was involved in down in Austin that we talk about from time to time. And he was there. We were told. All I know is he sat there and he just watched the proceedings. I was told by people who might know what they're talking about that this guy was there to pay attention to what was happening and to advise the judge on what he should do. And he did. 
you know, do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. He kept the judge on the straight and narrow um, and prevented him from perhaps doing things that were unconstitutional or stupid or who knows. Um, might even succumb to our, some of our arguments on his own. The judgment said, well, I don't know, it sounds sensible to me. No, can't have that. No, can't have that. There was an advisor down there, and that's what we're told. Whether it's true or false, don't know. But it's well, and one thing that appeared to be true. One thing, Some stranger. Well, yeah, and one thing that's been evidenced, you know, through videos and released transcripts and other uh, lots of other evidence is that these judges actually do attend seminars and yep. uh, conferences, and they do talk about how to defeat yeah. people's arguments. Yep. You know, and these are, generally speaking, um, there might be flaws in it, but they're generally constitutional arguments. Yeah. And these, these people who took an oath to uphold the Constitution are going to meetings that are closed to the public to learn how to defeat those constitutional arguments. Mm-hmm. That's Which, just wrong. It's not just wrong, it's treasonous. Well, there's, yeah. You can make that argument. All right. And it's certainly unethical, immoral, and the rest of that sort of thing. I mean, instead of defeating these people, why not show them? Say, look, we understand that you're sincere in what you think here. We're going to set you down. We're going to have a class here. We have the class once a month, full-day class, Saturday, maybe even Saturday and Sunday, we're going to invite you, and there will be 30 other people that turned up uh, making similar arguments here in the last month. We're going to invite all of you to this class, and we're going to sit you down, and we're going to show why you are mistaken. Not with the idea of putting you in jail or fining you. We're just going to show you, look, here's the truth of the matter. You're misguided. Here's why. You'll be able to see this. We will teach you. We will help you. But they don't want to teach you and help you. Oh, yeah. They want to defeat you. All right, and they want to find an angle where they can defeat you, even though you're making what may be intelligent and constitutional arguments. <laughs> we can't have any of that around here, boy. That'll wreck the whole thing. Yeah, I know. I mean, think about it. If they are running a district or a territorial sort of government thing, I, I mean, really, constitutional arguments are are not going to fly. Well. See, we did make well, constitutional arguments, though, down in that case in Austin, but we also made sure that we established up front that we were people of the state of Texas and we were entitled as beneficiaries of the Constitution of the state of Texas to make those arguments. You know, everybody comes in worrying about the other guy. What's he doing? He's, he can't do this. He can't do that. What can you do? What is your standing to claim some right under your state constitution, I think that I, I strongly suspect that if you don't if you don't understand where you got your standing to make your claims, they don't have to listen to them. Well, I can't. But on imagine. the other hand, you say I'm a beneficiary of the Constitution of the state of Texas, and you, as a public officer, are my are, my, are the are here to administer that 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 trust on my behalf. You're a fiduciary, so administer the trust on my behalf. Well, yeah. Now you give them cause for consideration. It doesn't mean you're going to live happily ever after, but we've done it, and we've succeeded in very strange circumstances that were perhaps unprecedented. Well, I mean, think about it. Why would you have any kind of 
state constitutional protections or uh, uh, authority at all if you are not one of the people. Yeah. And they have already presumed you're an animal. They've presumed you're an animal. They've presumed you're a federal citizen. They got a bunch of stuff. And, and we talked about it on this program back maybe a month ago. We turned up the text from the yep. Social Security where they where it said that if you are taking so the, the pension benefits, you will become a United States citizen or United States citizen of the United States or United U.S. citizen, one or the other. Well, that's the one that tangles you up in that 14th Amendment. You're nobody. You're not wanted. If you've got that Social Security number and you're collecting that, you are presumed to be something other than one of the people of the state of the union, or at least that's the way it appears to me. Well, sure, and you go in there, and they're presuming all these things, and they don't tell you, and you don't say, hey, by the way, because I don't want to sound stupid, I'm one of the people, and uh, I'm a, a man created in the image of God. I'm not mm -hmm. an animal. And you, you just go through this whole thing, and then what? Well, now they can't just presume all those things yeah. anymore. Now they've yeah. got now balls in their court. The the uh, yeah. burden has shifted to yes. them. Yeah. Instead of those presumptions, which relieve them of the burden of proof. All right, that's the real object behind the presumptions. We're going to presume A, B, C, and D. <laughs> and after that, all we have to do is show that you got a pulse, and that proves you're guilty. Right. Yeah, exactly. But they set the presumptions up. They're silent presumptions, and they are sufficient. If you don't ex identify those presumptions and expressly deny them, those presumptions are enough to get you convicted. And, you know, for years and years, I... I I tended to believe this, too, that, oh, my gosh, you know, especially after going through the federal court, I mean, going, oh, my gosh, these guys really are corrupt. They really don't follow the law. They really do just do what they want. And, oh, my God, you know, but then I started saying, you know, well, wait a minute. There's obviously some of that going on, too, but there's got to be more. There's just got to be more than everybody's a crook, okay? Just, no, it's got to be more than that. Why? Why does it have to be more? They have to have rules that they follow. Yeah, that's true. If they didn't, there'd be judges doing things that are so insane, everyone would know there's something wrong here. They have limits within which they have to work. All right, they got a lot of leeway within those limits, but still they have limits. They have to be planned by the rules, or we would have judges who are killing other judges in order to get hold of the case where the bribe coming in was a million dollars. Yeah. They'd be killing each other to get the big bribes. There's got to be rules, all right? They're just not the rules that you and I know about. Yeah, and they're not telling us, you know. Yeah. <laughs> That's the whole thing. That's yeah. why this is like an, you know, big investigation, a lifelong it's investigation. It's like Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> I mean, that's what it's like. You're going ahead and you're trying to move your way through some sort of a maze and you don't even know where you're going and you don't understand the rules and you've got to play the game and get thumped and shot and one thing or another until, oh, 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 I found the amulet or whatever. It'll get me to another level. You know? Yeah, and it is kind of like that, which, you know, hey, people spend lots of hours playing that crazy game. Mm -hmm. so and then there are other fun. people who play an even crazier game, and that is <laughs> yeah. we call litigation. Yeah, that's right. Pro se litigation. This, is, this makes Dungeons and Dragons look very rational. 
Yeah, it does. It really does because, you know, the, all the video games and stuff, I tell you, life is a whole lot more fun and interesting than any of these games that people can play. But there's also more danger. That's exactly right. You know, so you've got you know, to take that into account. I asked you before earlier in the program, why do you keep at this? And I can tell you from my perspective, I don't doubt for a minute, the good Lord has, has said, Al, this is what I want you to do. Yeah. Huh? For me, it's a spiritual motivation. I mean, I'd like to—I would like to just knock off, sign up for Social Security, and sit there on the porch on the rocking chair. That wouldn't bother me. Especially if I could see a creek, or if I could see, you know, some water and the rest of that. Do a little fishing. I wouldn't wouldn't disturb me. <laughs> but apparently, you know, I may be mistaken, but it appears to me that the good Lord says, "Uh-uh, Al, uh-uh, still need you." Those who stand firm to the end shall be saved. That means you don't get any retirement. You got to keep bumping your head on this wall, right? Until eventually, either the head, the skull cracks, or the wall cracks. So, in any case, all I'm saying is, for me, the motivation is spiritual. This, to me, is service to God. And insofar as I do it, and I don't mean that I do it well. Um, I'm, you know, I'm sure that the good Lord, if He's, you know. <laughs> I'm not claiming he's pleased with my performance, but this is what's been keeping me moving now for much since 1990 anyway. Uh, that's when I kind of got the message and understood a little bit about this and said, oh, 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 this is what you want me to do? Yeah. Do I get to get rich? No. At least not yet. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, I got to admit that's an element, at least an element for me, too. I mean, I'm I'm compelled to do this. Uh, I think anybody is. I think anyone who's really compelled to discover the truth more so than find the loot. All right. If you're looking for the truth, if you're looking for money, you're just patriot for profit. I get that. I'm not even complaining about it. People got to be paid. They're workmen's worthy of his hire. I'm not, I'm not complaining, but that's different from someone who feels compelled to find and reveal the truth. That guy is moving for a reason other than the love of money, typically. And at least that's my observation on it. And if he's not moving for money, what's left? Good Lord. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's obviously a spiritual battle going on. I mean, uh, anybody who believes the Bible has to believe that because it's part of the Bible. And I mean, it's not that difficult to look around and and see some evidence of that. Yeah, actually, it is probably for the vast majority of people. Well, and then, you know, you may eventually see it, but you didn't see it when you were 18. No, you didn't see, oh, this is spiritual warfare. When you finally get around to where you begin to contemplate the idea of spiritual warfare, and then you begin to look at the government and you say, you don't think they're engaged in spiritual warfare, do you? And you say, no, no, that can't be. Spiritual warfare is when Satan comes down with his wings flapping or something like this, and you see the horns on his head. That's what people think about for spiritual warfare. They don't get it. That that spiritual warfare can be waged by people who are ostensibly upstanding members of the community. And I don't even know if they understand what they're doing. Of course, they would say the same thing about me. They say, "I don't know. This guy knows what he's talking about." You know, there's but but 
Nevertheless, some people, whether they know it or understand it, I think they're engaged in spiritual warfare, take cops. They're just following orders. They don't bother to look and see, or most of them don't bother to look and see whether those orders are consistent with the Bible, with principles you find in the Bible, with laws and regulations you find in the Bible. They don't look at that. They don't even consider the possibility that maybe they are engaged in spiritual warfare. They just see it all as secular. Well, you know, what do you think the centurions up on the hill where Jesus uh, was strung up, do you think they just they, they, they realized what they were doing, or they just figured, well, hey, this is my job, this is what I, you know, my, I was I think mostly here. they're just following orders. I think so, too. Yeah. You know, by the There may uh, have been one or two around who understood what he was doing. I don't know that Pontius Pilate understood what he was doing. I mean, he may have had dim understanding, mm-hmm. but I wonder if he really understood that all of his life he'd actually been working on the wrong side of this spiritual warfare. Right. Um, did he think he was assuming some some great liability uh, in the next life by engaging in spiritual warfare against the Messiah, against his disciples? Well, and you know, we we've got lots of people involved, and then it, this speaks to the whole. Well, what are you saying? Everybody's involved in the conspiracy? Well, no. You know, those centurions. Not everybody's involved. knowingly involved. Right. A lot of people are involved, but a lot of people are no aren't. I don't think they're knowingly involved. Uh, if they are, what if they really were involved? What if they know what they're doing? Well, well, then, <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. you know, I mean, it, yeah. it's certainly possible because you know, I mean, from what the Bible sent you out as I send you out as sheep among the wolves, right? And you know that the uh, uh, from what it's. It, the Bible describes of the end times, which a lot of people seem to think we're at least close to, yeah. things get worse and worse, and people do know that, mm, I don't care, I'm on the wrong, I'm on the bad side, you know, bad is good, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, that's mm-hmm. cool, and, uh, you know, just, well, Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, well, the times of Noah. You know, there's another point here, there's, there's a verse in the Bible where, oh, the Messiah is talking about people who are the sons of the devil, the sons of Satan. He's implying that there's two classes of people in this world. And those are born of the, the, that are born of the devil's side of this thing. They have a natural animosity and perhaps a natural inability to feel compassion or whatever. For them, it's just natural. You know, of course they're serving his officers and serve Satan. That's that's their that's their dad. That's what we're gonna do. Now I'm not saying that's true. I am saying there's verse in the Bible mm-hmm. that allow you to suspect that's true. Well, and that just speaks to a lot of different levels, you know. I mean okay, in war, armies, you've got ranks, you've got generals and colonels and captains and privates. Okay, the privates don't really know what they're doing. They just do what they're told and as you go further up the line, people know more and more and more. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I assume spiritual warfare is the same. We go back to the Bible where Jesus sets down the Pharisees and tells them straight to their face, you're of your father, the devil. Yeah, yeah. But then we have the centurions. Well, he didn't tell them that, you know, but they were still involved nevertheless. They might have just been following orders. They, you know, they might have known something, but... Jesus didn't single them out and say, you, centurion, you are of your father the devil. It's like there's different 
you know, levels of, uh, I believe anyway, there's different complicity. levels of responsibility. Yeah. For, for and awareness doing. more than anything else, not just complicity, but awareness. That's yeah. the thing. Yep. You know, the essence of a, a crime, a real crime, not a penal okay. offense, a crime is intent. Yep. To this day. It doesn't matter. Again, you can go out in a car and drive down the road, and you can hit a child and kill the child. child darts into the road chasing a ball, hit the child, and you kill him. It's an accident. But if that same child jumps out, out of, from between trap, between cars chasing a ball, and you have time to break, but you say, I'm going to kill that little SOB, and you go ahead and speed up so you make sure you get him, that's murder. Yep. And the child is dead in both instances, same driver, same car. What's the difference? Intent. It's the intent that constitutes the crime. So now that's, you know, and I don't doubt for a minute that's the essence of what goes on in much of the Bible. It's not just a matter of conduct. Right. Did you do something that caused some people to die? Well, it may be that, you know, the front right, right tire blew out. And I cracked, uh, and I hit hit some hit some car, and you know, killed some people and some adults and their and their children. Is that a crime? No, that no, it's not. I didn't intend to do that. Well, it's and just I, the tire blew out. It was an unforeseen accident, uh, you know, defect in the vehicle, and uh, <clears throat> you know, I, I regret that people died, but it was not a crime. It was an accident. Well, and I think the Bible speaks to that specifically when you know. Jesus basically said that, listen, if you even think about murdering somebody, you did it. Yeah. You know, I mean, you have the intent. No action. You didn't do it. But you had the intent to do it. You had the intent in your heart. You're guilty. That's what Jesus said. I mean, you didn't have to go murder anybody. You still committed the sin of murder. You know, you might not have committed the act of murder, but you did commit the sin. You know, that's like the difference between intent and whoops. Yeah, no. And conduct. Yeah. And most of what they do in penal offenses right now is based on conduct. And I'm I'm a little trying to get away from that. the issue of intent. They just want to know did you yeah, did somebody die? Fine. Right. See, I'm a little murky on this subject. Maybe uh maybe you can speak to it a little bit like where did we uh, I mean, I was under the in, impression that there was a time in America where Okay, you know, we're charging you with a crime. One of the things yep. they had to prove was that you intended to do this. Absolutely. When did that Very all difficult. when did that all change and it's like, well, we don't really care if you intended to do it, you did it and uh that's all we need to do. Yeah. It what? goes from intent to conduct. What? Well, I don't know. I don't have an absolute answer for you, but I would bet that it started no later. It probably started with the New Deal. That'd be a guess or at least in that time frame. 1930s, but it may not have started until sometime after 1948. There were great changes that took place in 1948. That's true. Um, and maybe that's when they did it. Something that should be discovered. But whenever it was, it was when the government started prosecuting people. It was close to whenever the government started prosecuting people for penal offenses rather than for crimes. Penal offense is civil offense with an attached criminal penalty. It's not a crime. It has a criminal penalty, but it's not a crime. What's the deal on civil offense? Conduct. Crime is intent. Very difficult to prove intent. 
That's an issue for the jury. Now, how do they? How uh, see? I mean, that's I. I get. Okay, here's what they. Here's the change. But how do you? How do you go about? One day you're saying, okay, well, hey, uh, we have crimes and we have civil offenses, and uh, you know, crimes have an intent. Civil has no criminal penalties, but if you did it, you did it. Where, where, how do they get about to go? Well, you know what? We got a new idea, and we're just going to say we're going to attach criminal penalties to civil offenses. And you know, I had—I told you this—I had a judge tell me that about traffic tickets, a a particular traffic ticket. I said, "Well, what?" Because I was trying to pin him down and say, "Okay, what kind of you know?" Because the Oregon Constitution, and, and this is one of those things that got dismissed. Okay, and I, I'm starting to look back on these things and go, because I didn't understand. <laughs> Why didn't he let me go? Exactly. I mean, was I on to some? Because it seemed like he shut me down, but then he dismissed it anyway. And I'm like, what? And I'm starting to think he was like getting a little antsy about, well, you know what? I don't want this guy going anymore this this way. He's too close. Get out. Because... What I was saying, and I thought I was on to something, saying, well, now, wait a minute, the Oregon Constitution says we have civil and criminal, which is this. Because there is no provision in our Constitution for anything else, right? So what is this? Well, it's this with that. Oh, well, I didn't know what to say much after that, but he dismissed it anyway. And I think he might have been thinking, you know, if this guy goes to the... uh, Oh, really? Well, in that case, guess what? I'm one of the people, uh, you know, and you're a fiduciary. Yeah, he might figure it out. Yeah, and it's like, get out. Guy's got a nose where he can track this stuff. We better keep him off the trail or he's going to learn more than he already knows. I think so. You were asking when this stuff might have started. In the script here, I have a section on commercial crimes that's down on page 20. And it says, according to 27 CFR 72.11, this is the Code of Federal Regulations, it's been declared that many crimes are now deemed to be commercial. I'll guarantee you a commercial crime is civil. All right, or at least that's my belief. I don't know that I can guarantee it. But if you're saying a commercial crime, I think that's evidence you're dealing in a civil, you know, civil arena rather than a criminal arena. They call it a crime, but I think when they say commercial, I think they're talking penal. And it says commercial crimes. This is reportedly. Now, I didn't pull this up from 27 CFR 7211.11 on my own. I've cut and pasted this from another source, and I'm hoping that the source is reliable. But it defines commercial crimes, and it says any of the following types of crimes, federal or state, offenses against the revenue laws, Burglary, counterfeiting, forgery, kidnapping, larceny, robbery, illegal sale or possession of deadly weapons, prostitution, including soliciting, procuring, pandering, white slaving, keeping a house of ill fame and like offenses, extortion, swindling and confidence games, and attempting to commit, conspiring to commit or compounding any of the foregoing crimes, addiction, to narcotic drugs and the use of marijuana will be treated as if such were a commercial crime. Now, 
I won't even claim that I absolutely understand what I'm reading here. But I'm willing to bet you that around the time that they declared all crimes, well, at least any of the following, uh, to be commercial crimes, they say commercial crimes, any of the following types of crimes, colon, offenses. I don't think an offense is a crime. They're, mm, they're, no. used, they're defining the term commercial crimes. That's like saying Federal Express. All right? It doesn't mean this is part of the federal government. All right? You put the two words together and it's a proper noun. Or maybe it's just a noun, but I don't think a commercial crime is a crime. And whenever they started this, I would bet the same time that they passed 27 CFR 72.11, that will be approximately the time they started to treat us to penal offenses rather than just crimes. And how do we get there? Uh, I'll bet it has something to do almost certainly with being a citizen of the United States. I'm going to bet that it has something to do with being presumed to be operating within a territory mm-hmm. or district of the United States rather than a state of the Union. Well, if the if the Congress, if it's true what you believe that, the Congress has unlimited jurisdiction to basically make any kind of rule or law they want in the territories or districts, then they could just, you know, say, well, hey, you know what, this is too difficult for us to prove intent, so we're just going to change that. And they could. That's the whole thing. I mean, if you want a big government and you want to be able to jail people, you don't want to mess with them on the basis of intent especially at the federal level. You know, one of the things, again, I remember as a kid, people used to say, don't make a federal case out of it. And what they meant back then was very few cases ever go to federal court. But as the federal government grew and began to assert itself more and more into the areas that used to be states of the union, they came up with more and more laws, and federal cases are common, relatively speaking, compared to what they were back in the 50s and 60s. It's because they've expanded their jurisdiction. Why? Part of the reason is because they're going after a lot of people for penal offenses, uh, which are civil rather than actual crimes. Well, not just drugs, why. Drugs, drugs, drugs. I mean, yep. I hear the 70, I'm told that 70% of the people in federal penitentiaries are there on drug-related crimes. I've read that, too. That's all based... Where is the intent? Where is the harm? It used to be under common law. There had to be common law within the states of the Union. They'll tell you in one or more Supreme Court cases that there reportedly is no common law within the the federal jurisdiction. Common law is within the states, and when they say states... I have no doubt they mean states of the union. Mm-hmm. If you don't come up and say, where did, the, where did the offense take place? They say, oh, TX or Texas uh-huh. or state of Texas. So no, it happened within the borders of the state of Texas, a member state of the perpetual union, styled the United States of America, in my opinion. Now you got their attention. Well, I mean, okay, just look at the end of this here. Okay, let's just presume there are 70% of the people in federal penitentiaries are there for drug charges. And here we have addiction to narcotic drugs. Now, I thought, aren't we always taught that addiction is a medical condition? I understand that. So have they criminalized a 
a, a, a medical condition? That's basically what it comes down to. And I'll tell you another one that's interesting. Who in the government is qualified to make a medical determination as to whether or not you are or are not addicted to a particular drug? Mm-hmm. Cops not even have a license to practice medicine. I mean, it says addiction to narcotic drugs and use of marijuana will be treated as if right. such were commercial crimes. So they're not commercial yeah. crimes. No, they're not commercial, <laughs> but they're going to be treated as if they were commercial. Well, that, that's an interesting way to... <laughs> the difference between addiction and the other offenses that they listed up here. Revenue laws, burglary, counterfeiting, forgery, kidnapping, larceny, right. robbery, illegal sale or possession of a deadly weapon, prostitution, swindling, and confidence games. Attempting to commit, conspiring to commit, compounding any of the foregoing crimes. Um, the offenses they have listed here, they have kidnapping, but they don't have assault. Right. They don't have murder, isn't listed as commercial crimes. Now, you know, the thing is, though, how do you burglarize somebody without the intent to do so? How do you accidentally burglarize somebody well the point is no i don't i mean you know, you know i mean you can argue gee i was so damn drunk i thought i thought that was my house it reminded me of the place where i grew up and so i just i don't know i was drunk so i walked in and robbed it but, <laughs> yeah. but the point is is if they don't have to prove intent that means you can jail a lot of people well yeah i if you had I, to prove I, intent I, I bet the size of the prisons in this country wouldn't be much more than 10 percent of what they are right now no, and uh, the congressman wouldn't be making uh, hardly any money off of the private prisons. Yeah. That's another thing, man. There's so many of these people in Congress invested. You know, you got to wonder, okay, here's, here comes a congressman. And apparently he has no money of his own because he has to get money from other people to run for the office. But when he leaves, somehow he's worth a million dollars now. Well, that's not... You didn't get paid a million dollars for that job. Where'd that money come from? Well, well then you that's look at an interesting story. We could, I could explain it to you, but not right now. We, I, I'm pretty busy right now, so we can't <laughs> explain that. Uh, I got stacks of money to count. I'm, I'm busy. <laughs> no, I understand. You know, it's, but what, what gets as if it were a commercial crime? Okay, well, if Obviously, then it isn't a commercial crime. What is it? What is addiction? What kind of crime is addiction to a It's not a crime or at all. Yeah, I think that's probably I mean, probably you could make thing. an argument that I'm addicted to oxygen. Yeah. Right. Or I'm addicted to water. Mm-hmm. Right? I'm addicted to food. You make a good case I'm addicted to pizza. You know, I don't get into it every day or anything like that, but you, you could make the argument. Um, yeah, I'm addicted to food. Hey, I know a bunch of people that uh, that are addicted to television. You know, one of the things that's interesting, there's a couple of things that's interesting to me on this definition of commercial crimes, which is allegedly at 27 CFR 72.11. And again, it says it includes offenses against the revenue laws. That's income tax, among other things. Burglary counterfeiting, forgery, kidnapping. Why do you think kidnapping is in this commercial crime? 
Well, I mean, you could justify that saying, well, you know, you're you're kidnapping somebody for a ransom, and uh, that's exactly the point. Payday. You're gonna you're trying to make money by kidnapping. Same thing is true with revenue laws, right. burglary, counterfeiting, forgery, kidnapping, larceny, robbery, illegal sale or possession of deadly weapons, sale of deadly weapons, prostitution, that's for money, extortion, that's for money, swindling and confidence games, it's for money, and attempting to commit, conspiring to commit, or compounding any of the foregoing crimes. These commercial crimes are all about money. Right? And the link on this thing has something to do with the fact that you are using Federal Reserve notes. I'll bet on that, although I can't prove it. But this is all about money. And what's interesting, the one that's in a couple of them that are interesting to me. One of them is extortion, and the definition I'm aware of for extortion is taking money under the color of law. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. A police officer with a gun on his hip and the rest of it who was giving you that traffic ticket, uh, how do they get out of it? Maybe they say, we didn't take any money. We took currency. We weren't trying to get your money. We took currency. But what about confidence games? How many times have we heard the government (laughs) and the Federal Reserve tell us that the critical element to using Federal Reserve notes is public confidence? We've got to maintain confidence in the system. We've got to maintain public confidence in the fiat dollar. And as long as we can maintain that, the thing flies. How far is that removed from a confidence game? I'm wondering, commercial crimes, could we go after the Federal Reserve based on the idea they were engaged in confidence games by teaching us and and bamboozling us into believe these green pieces of paper are money? I think you could make the case, and I think you You're could. You're right. I think you could use modern money mechanics as evidence. Uh, yeah, they wrote it down and said, "Hey, the only value this has is your confidence in it." Yeah. Well, wait yeah. a minute. Now, if I was yeah. going to say, "Well, hey, I want to sell you some stocks," and I just thought I'd let you know, the only value in it is the confidence you have in it. Yeah. Well, that's not going to go over real big with most people. I'm going to say, say what? what? Yeah, well, you, yeah, huh? yeah, it's all about your confidence, you know. Oh, let me go one step further. and uh, you know, It has no intrinsic value. They use that verbiage in modern money mechanics. And it's like, okay, so we have something that has no intrinsic value, that its only value depends on your confidence that somebody will take it. How can that be legal? I don't think it can myself. I, I think, you know, I, I honestly, although then we go back to the whole, well, depends where you are. Depends who you are. It also depends on whether you're in a state of emergency or not, where the law is effectively suspended for the for the duration of the emergency. All right? The only law is to, to self-defense and self-preservation. Well, you know, Which my, is to say there is no law to speak of, of the kind we're talking about. There's no constitutional law, no statutory law. They can hold it up there. And if you don't object and say, there was an emergency here. I wasn't engaged in any emergency. There was no emergency. The didn't, emergency didn't exist until the cop turned on the flashing lights on his vehicle. 
And if he thinks there was an emergency beforehand, what was that emergency? And who is he to define an emergency? Well, and the courts have mentioned, at least in, in several court cases, that, you know, it's not enough for a cop just to say, well, I, I you know, I, I felt like there was an emergency. Mm-hmm. No, you have to be able to articulate yeah. what it was that was the emergency or else... Uh, you know, you flipped on emergency lights when there was no emergency there. That's Pally. right. And there's a law that says you're not supposed to do that. Yeah. It's it's in the transportation code, at least here in Texas and probably in other states as well. Oh, it's vehicles that it's illegal to turn on the emergency warning lights if there's not a problem. Yep. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so the yeah. police officer who is using these emergency, again, this goes to whether you are just playing defense and hoping to get out of this thing alive, or right. if you have taken a more aggressive position and said, I'm going to sue that guy. You know, I, I, before you, right before you said that, I was thinking, oh, this is perfect for counterclaim. <laughs> yeah. it's a, it really is. And for those of you out there wondering, well, what, you know, I don't, because I, I'm, I'm certainly, I, I know very little about it, but... I, I understand the concept of it, but, you know, the details are beyond where I'm at with it. But well, see, the th- one of the things about the counterclaim, so far as I understand, I don't think you can file a counterclaim for a crime. You might be able to allege malici- malicious prosecution or something like that. I don't know for a fact. But I don't think you can generally file a counterclaim if you're charged with a crime. But if a penal offense is a civil violation with an attached criminal penalty, I think anytime somebody charges you with a penal offense, I think they are that's just a civil suit. Mm-hmm. I think it opens a door wide open for okay, let's go. You're <laughs> you're charging me. You're you're hoping to collect a fine from me for how much? Yeah, five hundred dollars, seven hundred fifty. I'm going to sue you for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. How do you like those odds? If well, you yeah. win, you get $750, and if I win, I get 150000 or whatever part the jury's willing to award. You know, around here, a lot of people were, what the thing was is because everybody knows, oh, oh, okay, so the cops shoot somebody and somebody, hey, that wasn't right, and let's say you go to court and a jury says, yeah, you know what, that wasn't right, uh, pay that family, you know, a million bucks. Yep. Well, that million bucks comes out of the coffers of the county or city or whatever, uh, you know, and ultimately the taxpayers. Yep. And, you know, nobody responsible really is responsible. I understand that. So around here, people started trying to sue in a personal capacity. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have, they had some success. A couple of, uh, what do you call it, uh, out-of-court settlements, not, yeah. for, not for a lot of money, but, you know, the victory's a victory. Uh, but not very many, because they really fight against that, because there's a good reason why, too, because you don't want these, okay, I'm just doing my job. All right, so you're just doing your job. Well, the thing is, if you're out just doing your job and you don't do it right, you damage somebody and you get held responsible for it, all your buddies who are just doing their job, too, are going to find out about that, and they're going to say, ooh, you know, I'm not going to be able to just be, hey, you know what? 
these uh, quotas about all these tickets I'm supposed to write for no reason at all other than to raise revenue, I, mm-hmm. I've got to watch out because if I'm going to be the one held responsible for it, buddy, uh, I'm going to watch out a little closer. And they don't want that. See, the well, gov- the you know how you get into those that. tickets. They're obviously just intended to raise money. Sure. Does that constitute extortion in the so. definition of commercial crimes? You could make the argument. Is it swindling pretty, you know, in a confidence game that some private corporation has got some people dressed up as if they were officers of the law, and they're out there trying to extort currency from people. Is that a swindling? Is that evidence of swindling in confidence games? Yeah, um, I think you can make I mean, the argument for the money. They're not. They're not giving you that seatbelt violation to save your life. They're not protecting any people, or at least not many. There's, I doubt that there's any evidence that they're saved. I don't doubt they save a few lives, but it wouldn't be many. Uh, this is about the money. Get that money. Well, yeah. You it, know, it's it, the same it, thing as the red light cameras. Right. There's another one. I'll bet you money that'll, under commercial crimes, I'll bet that cost constitutes extortion. Right? A confidence game. Swindling. Blah, blah, blah. Everybody knows they're putting it up. They put those things up in order to raise revenue. Sure, and even the evidence now. I mean, that was everybody's belief, and that's what the cities basically said. Oh, 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 yeah, well, it'll give us a lot of revenue, but, you know, it's for safety, too. And uh, sure, but now the statistics are in, and everywhere they've got those red light, you know, uh, cameras, it hasn't made it safer. It's actually yeah. done the opposite because people, they see these things and, and go crazy. It's like, you know, you see a cop and your heart starts beating faster. And you, know, oh, yeah. you know, the same. it has the same reaction. And people are very, okay, I don't know how few, but it doesn't seem like that many people react very well under a, a, a surprise stress situation. You know, like, bang, here's a cop. You know, most people don't do well. You know, they, they get nervous, they get worried, they get scared. They, they And under those circumstances, nobody really acts, you know, all that well when you're scared, you're nervous, and all these things. You know, a lot of, you, you can make a lot of mistakes. And when you're going, you know, 30, 40 miles an hour, mistakes can happen pretty quick. And they do. And there's these cameras to blame. So what are they here for? And you know what the funny thing about it is, that I find funny anyway, is the fact you that... You have a peculiar sense of humor, though. Uh, you know that. I do. I do. Yeah, yeah. But what yeah. what I think is funny is that not only that, they obviously wanted to make a bunch of money off of this, too. But that's turned backwards, too. They're not making any money off of it. It's actually costing them money. Because people well, are starting to get wise. That? Well, people are starting to get wise. They're starting to fight these tickets, and they're starting to challenge them, and they're losing. Which means, oh, we've got to spend time on paperwork, we've got to spend time on court, we've got to spend time on judges and lawyers and everything else. For what? A $75 ticket? A hundred bucks? You know, yeah, it's going to add up and start going the negative, and it has. Now, it didn't right away because it for you know, oh, gosh, I got a ticket in the mail. Gee, they've got a picture of me. Till somebody decided, I'm getting a lawyer. And the lawyer laughs and says, you got to be kidding me, right? Somebody took a picture? Who? Let's find out who. Yeah, oh, exactly. Nobody? 
know. And who is going to testify against me? Oh, nobody. I'm entitled to face my accuser. Who's my accuser? Yeah, that camera, that, that box over there. You know, I, I is the camera. Somebody swear the camera in. <laughs> yeah, I bring that camera in. It's located down at the intersection of I I sixty five and and three thirty six. And bring that box in here, and we're going to swear it into uh, we'll swear it in as a witness. That's right. Find this box in contempt, but it won't answer any of my questions. Yeah. You I've know. seen I haven't seen it for, for, for a number of years. But it's turned up in the past. I'll bet I haven't seen this for at least five years and probably ten. Where it was shown that the municipalities were tinkering <laughs> with the yellow light yep. on the on the uh on the stoplights in order to they were reducing the amount of time it was yellow. So they had a better chance of catching people on these red light cameras. Yep, they went from five seconds to three seconds. Uh huh. Well, I don't know if they're still doing that or not, but that's absolute evidence that they are in it for the money. They're not trying to create a safety situation. They are in it for the money. They can catch more people running the light if they've only got three seconds to make the decision to hit the brakes or hit the gas. Yeah, and they're not only for the money. They are actually creating a public safety hazard. I agree by shortening <laughs> to by, make by, that money. Yeah, exactly. Now I had a, and this was back when again I didn't know anything about anything, but I was still willing to fight. But I, you know, I just it was like taking a you know a spoon to a gunfight, you know. So I end up in Medford Municipal Court because one rainy night, night raining in Medford. I'm going down one of the streets in Medford, and I come up, and I'm coming up on it, and the light turns yellow. Yep. Well, I'm right at it, so I go through. Well, the lights come on, and I get pulled over and get a ticket for running a red light. I said, well, that light wasn't red. He goes, no, it was orange, same thing. (laughs) I'm like, well, same thing. You know, I I read the actual... uh, you know, that thing you got to read to take your test. And that's not what it says. It says, it says, you know, proceed with caution. Yeah. And it also goes even further to say that, look, if stopping is unsafe, keep going. Yeah. I said, look, it's night, it's raining. You you think it's a good idea? To slam on the brakes. <laughs> slam on the brakes and come to a screeching halt in the middle of the intersection? And maybe get hit from behind from whoever's behind you, or maybe slide out into the intersection where somebody else catches a green now going the opposite direction, and they don't hit the brakes. All right, yep. They hit you. Well, and I went to court, and I lost. Yeah. And I didn't I didn't go any further than that. I, I just, you know, okay, fine. I fought it. I lost. Blah, blah, blah. You know, the same right, a bunch of criminals, blah, 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 blah. you know, but now I think I would do better at, at that. But this is the kind of stuff they do. And that is absolutely contrary to public safety. So when they say, oh, well, you know, public safety, oh, baloney, they're not doing anything. And, you know, and that's the whole thing, too, because here in, oh, the police powers, it's in our... Uh, in, in the Oregon Constitution, it probably is similar in, in most states, is that they have the uh, 
the I don't know if it's the preamble or it's just the start there where it says, you know, in order to, pro, you know, and they talk about peace, safety, and order, and whatever else, right? And that's the police powers that the federal government apparently doesn't have that they simulate with the uh, it Commerce It doesn't have clause. within the states of the Union. Right. I'm not sure it has it anywhere because they... I use... think it does have it within the territories, and I think it may explain why virtually every cop you see is wearing a, a an American flag that has a gold yeah. fringe on it. Well, yeah, that's true. I think that gold fringe is evidence that he's functioning in some sort of a federal capacity. I do, too. Maybe within the territories. What else is the purpose of it? No, I understand. You know, because flags... If it's just to decorate, why don't you hang a smiley face on it? Yeah. Put a couple California smiley faces on the... In fact, we could do that instead of having the stars. (laughs) Okay? We could change them all in for California smiley faces, where everybody is just happy as can be. In the states of the United States rather than in the states of the Union. Well, and I'll tell you, that was another argument people around here made. I I was, you know, I didn't participate in this particular argument, but I did go and watch a bunch of different court cases with people trying it out about, you know, the flag (laughs) issue. And uh, I don't know. I, I, you know, I felt there was something to it, but I just felt the arguments were dumb. They were just, they were crazy. They didn't make any sense to me, right? So I, I that's why I didn't participate in it. Yeah. I just, but I was curious because I thought, man, I don't know. There's, it, there is, there's got to be something to the flag because, you know, throughout history, the flag has been a, a symbol of jurisdiction. This is who you're doing yeah. business with. Yeah. It's a notice. That's what a yep. flag actually is. It's a notice of who you're yep. doing business with and what rules we're going to be conducted under. So when you go into a court and there's a flag with a gold fringe on it, you're going, oh, okay, so uh, we're going to be doing business under the, what, the rules of the president? Because that's what it is. That's an executive decoration on the American flag representing Mm -hmm. the executive department. What? So what? (laughs) So what is this? Is this an administrative hearing? You know, because by its nature, it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I got all that, but. You know, the, and I didn't know, uh, I, I didn't have my own argument to make at the time, so I was just watching other people, and, you know, there really is something to it, though, because, well, you know, it is a notice. I've, I've told you this before, but it'll fit again just for the heck of it. When I got into that lawsuit down in Austin where I was sued for twenty five grand a day, $9 million a year, when we advanced our freedom of religion defense on this, one of the parts that we included in that, one of the other lines of defense, is I told them, one, I'm a bene- I'm one of the people of the state of Texas. As such, I'm a beneficiary of the Constitution of the state of Texas, um, and I want you to administer that trust on my behalf. Now, they never said a word about it. They may have just laughed their butts off when they saw it, but <clears throat> it was included there, and we said one of the things I want is I want an Article Five corpse Article 5 is the Judicial Department in Texas. I'm entitled to that as one of the people. I want an Article 5 court. And uh, what was the other? Oh, I do not consent to an administrative hearing. Mm-hmm. All right? Because it took, combines all... It is not a judicial hearing, which I'm entitled to. Instead, it combines all three fundamental powers of government under one singular authority. Executive, legislative, and judicial. All of them are functioning. The judge fu- it functions in all three of those capacities at the same time, which I think makes him a sovereign. 
theory. I think I didn't know that. I didn't say that at the time. I didn't imagine that at the time. I've come to think that's true. What was my point in all this? My point was, having made the argument in the paperwork under oath that I'm one of the beneficiaries of the state of Texas and that I'm entitled to an Article Five court, first thing they did is they, with an additional man or other animals and rest of it, went dead silent for five months, didn't hear a word from them, or prior we'd been catching paperwork from them every two to six weeks. Now they went dead silent for five months, came back, and the chief administrative judge for the district took over the case, and he held it for the next several months. Up until then, we'd had one different judge every time we showed up for hearing, different judge. This time, the chief administrative judge, and we went to his courtroom. One of the things that surprised me, and I didn't really understand at the time, in retrospect, I look at it, and I think maybe this was you know, there are things there that you you don't know what's going on. You you learn as you go. Right. As you run, you got to run the maze to learn how the maze runs. <clears throat> there was no flag in the chief administrative judge's courtroom for Travis County. This is number one guy. There was no flag in that courtroom except for a small flag of the state of Texas without any fringe on it as nutty as it sounds, that was being held by a Tyrannosaurus Rex that was a plastic Tyrannosaurus Rex, green. You all seen him. You might have had one as a kid. They had the damn Tyrannosaurus Rex hands were holding the, <laughs> the staff on this flag that was no bigger than a note card. That was the only flag in the room. There was no, and I saw it, and I thought, there's no gold fringe flag in this room. What the hell's going on here? I didn't make an issue of it. It's only in retrospect that I look back, and I think this was significant, and I think it goes to, I told them I wanted an Article Five court, and I think they gave me one. I didn't know exactly what to do with it, but I think I got an Article Five court. I did not have an administrative hearing. So the point is that there is something, there is some value, or at least that's, that's evidence to support this, you know, from which you can infer that there is value to raising this flag issue, but you can't just come in and allow them to presume you're a citizen of the United right. States and also bitch about whether or not the flag has gold fringe on it or not. No. Do you have a driver's license? What's your complaint? Do you have a vehicle that's registered in this state, meaning the territory or, or uh, administrative district? What's your complaint about the gold fringe flag? It's the way we do business. Where are we going? You're using Federal Reserve notes? You got some green currency in your pocket? You're in the you're in the territory. What's your you complaint know, about the federal flag? That's one of the things too that uh, I've heard for many years, and I you know for a while I had no reason not to. It's, okay, that makes sense. It seems reasonable, but now I don't believe it anymore. Which is that? Oh well, look if you've got this or you've got that and you've got this and you've got that, and we all know what they are. You know the license, the social, you know on and on it goes. Right that a birth certificate, marriage license, whatever it is. You know, if you've got any of these things, you're screwed. That's it. And I I, okay, I had no reason not to believe that. I thought, yeah, i got to stay away from all those things. i got to go live in a cave. And, you know, i got to go bury myself in a hole somewhere. Yeah. I gotta get, can't have any of those. Well, now I start thinking, wait a minute, no. You know what? I can have anything I want because, like you brought out, there's it's not a contract. Yeah, it's a pledge. It is what I say. And it you is. control what it means. That's right. Did you sign this piece of paper? Is. Yes, I did. But here's what I here's the way I defined the words on that piece of paper. That's right. I'm the only one who signed it. 
It means what I say it means. Yep. And I think, huh? you know, people got to do that. You you do have to be aware of the things you have. You know, do you have a driver license? Okay, be aware of that. Understand what you've done. What what do you mean? And the liability you may be incurring. And what do you mean? Did you mean to give up all your rights and uh, you know just become a slave of some territory? I mean, is you that could also what, ask know? the people who gave you who you're not assuming that just because I have a driver's license, you're not assuming that I've waived my God-given unalienable rights, are you? <laughs> you're not assuming that because give me a witness who's under oath on the on the witness stand, I'm going to want to know. You're not assuming that because I have a driver's license, it's presumed I'm operating in a territory of the United States or an administrative district rather than the state of a union, are you? And <laughs> yeah. Mr. and Mrs. Jurors, will you please pay attention to the answer to this question? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can use this stuff, but one thing I've been told, and again, don't know it to be true, but I think it might be, they allegedly have a list, which I have not seen, but it includes things like social security number and driver's license and bank account signature card, who knows, utility bills, and I don't know what all they got on the list. Federal Reserve notes. Federal Reserve notes. They might have, the list might be 10, 15, 20 items. And they essentially look at the items and check them off. And if you have for the sake of argument, more than a third or maybe more than half of those items, then it's presumed you have volunteered into their system. On the other hand, if they can't find evidence of more than one or two of those items, then they are more reluctant to deal with you. Well, they yeah. are and restrained. But they've got to show that you actually did this, 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 and this. You got 16. Now we can safely presume that he has voluntarily stepped into this state and where you are judged by conduct. You have a driver's license? Conduct. We don't care about your intent. Conduct, you have one, all right? Well, I think that's going to be their argument. And again, in that case back there in Austin, there was a moment when the judge, John K. Dietzikin, chief administrative judge for the county, um, there was a moment when he asked the other defendant that was still there, Ben Taylor, he said, are you the Ben Taylor that has a brother up in uh, wherever? Plano, Texas, or where it was? Yeah, that's me. And he went through a couple of things. He asked him a couple of items. All right. And Ben, yeah, yeah, that's me. And he never asked me one thing. And at that time, I had nothing that linked me to the state, to this state. I didn't have a driver's license or insurance or, uh, I don't know, anything. Utilities, phone, nothing was in my name. Huh? And he didn't ask me a question, and I don't know why, but he was looking at something. He was looking at a list mm -hmm. when he talked to Ben, and when, and then he never, he never looked at a list for me. Now, what does that prove? doesn't prove anything. It's just an anecdote. You know, and maybe it's meaningful, and maybe it's just a coincidence, but for whatever reason, he didn't ask me, are you, <laughs> are you the SOB who published the anti-shyster? Yeah. No, didn't say any of that. Well, and I, I, I really, I, I've started to believe that if you can go through the things you have, whatever they are, and you can say, okay, here's what I meant, here's what it is, you're not presuming that I'm giving up my rights by doing this, right? I mean, I thought this was all about, uh, I get to, you know, if I choose to, you know, I, I can engage in commerce if I'd like, I can carry around passengers if I like. Heck, my vehicle is registered to do it if I want to. 
I got a license to operate that if I want to, but was I? You know, and then you go back to the, okay, fine. So we're not going to go by intent. We're going to go by what you do. Well, you see any passengers in here? See, they can't have it both ways. Well, okay, fine. You, you weren't really engaged in any of that, but you meant to be. Well, wait a minute. What is it? Am I? Is it my intent or is it what I do? Which is it? Pick. You know, because, you know... You, if it's only conduct, it's not a crime. Right. And if it's only conduct, then you got to... Okay, fine. I wasn't not... I was not engaged in that activity. You know, and, and you lay it down. Why? Well, because there were no passengers. That's the whole thing, right? I mean, it's the passenger vehicle. Registered to haul passengers. I'm licensed to operate that passenger vehicle. But if there's no passengers in it, then I'm not operating a passenger vehicle. I'm not engaged in the commercial activity. Well, and at the you know, time, we, can argue, we can make that argument, but if it's defined as a commercial vehicle, it's like saying just because I'm driving a taxi cab doesn't mean I'm engaged in commerce. Well, maybe you are. And they can argue that you're looking for passengers. <laughs> all right? Or maybe you just dropped one off and you're returning after you dropped off a passenger. Okay, prove it. You know, I mean, the thing well, is, I, you know, I try I to guess, say that I in front of a jury. You know, that, that well, this is another of, thing. They don't want to go there with this argument. It's, because It's not a matter of being so smart that we can outsmart these guys in a way that's obvious to all. But if you can raise the proper issues and deny them in front of a jury and ultimately force the government to put on evidence to refute what you've denied, mm -hmm. some of the jurors are going to say, start looking and say, say, what, what the heck are you people talking about this guy's this guy's it's presumed he gave his gave up his god-given rights because he took a driver's license it's presumed he's acting with he's knowingly acting within a territory or administrative district because he's got a driver's license you don't think we're within the state of texas yeah because you see they're not going to be you say he you say him you say they're going to say wait a minute i got a driver license mm-hmm are you saying I gave up my God-given yeah. rights? Yeah. A bunch that's of jurors this, aren't going to like this comes that. Down to. So if it looks like you're going to bring those questions to the jury. Right. They could. It's not as if, you know, I'm not arguing that I'm so smart they can't get me. I guarantee that they can. All right. But they can't do it without without assuming a certain amount of liability. Well, yeah, I can't. You might have to show how the racket works. Oh, right? yeah, I'm not. They would rather protect the racket than throw me in the slammer, or at least that's my that's that's my hope. I'm thinking that, you know, it's not that I'm that smart. It's that I'm that bad for business. Yeah. You know, I mean, really. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. <laughs> you know, it, it, it really, because once you realize it really is a racket, you know, which is basically an illegal business, so it's business. And mm -hmm. you know, the thing is, when <laughs> who wants to deal? You know, oh, did, did you want to go fix roofs for somebody who, every time you have fixed a roof, they have argued the bill for months with you, made yeah, yeah. you go through every little detail, or did you tell yeah. them, hey, you know, there's this other company that fixes roofs, too. You should call them. Yeah. You know, anybody in business doesn't want to deal with problem customers. Oh, absolutely. You know, they're bad for business. And, and unless, you know, well, hey, this is a really big job. 
you know, you I know, can make a million bucks off this guy. Maybe it's worth a little trouble. But, you know, unless you are worth a million bucks to them, you know. <laughs> I understand. You know, when we talk about the definition of commercial crimes, which we read from 27 CAOFR 7211, if I recall the, the section. I don't have it right here in front of me again, but I think that's what we're talking about. If all, if it turns out that most crimes, or some crimes, alleged crimes, are actually commercial, and the commerce, you read the list, everything has got extortion and kidnapping and prostitution and, and selling drugs and whatever, it appears that all of these commercial crimes involve selling, involve some sort of a transaction where you receive some cash currency. If... If these are commercial crimes, what do you, what kind of court do you suppose you're in when these crimes are being prosecuted? Well, is it also fair to say that this is a commercial court? I'd have to, yeah. It'd be a suspicion. I wouldn't say that's you know God's truth necessarily, but I'll bet you commercial crimes are prosecuted in a commercial court, which is consistent with the idea is not about right and wrong, innocence or guilt. But get the money. This is commerce, baby. Get the money. Show me the money. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And uh, if you won't show the judge the money in the in the in a brown paper bag given to the judge before the trial, you're going to have to show them the money. You know, when the trial is over and you pay the fine, the penalty, or they throw you in the slammer for a couple of days. Well, I know one question they don't like is what kind of court is this? You yeah. know, and that that was basically what. I asked that guy, and he dismissed, you know, no license, no insurance, no registration, no mm-hmm. license plate, none of that. Just tooling around in my truck, you know. <laughs> and uh, you know, here I am, and I'm, I, and I thought, I honestly thought, hey, you know, he shut me down. Oh well, it's a civil case. Uh, Come in with it, you know. I'm like, well, the Oregon Constitution says this, and uh, so, what, what provision is there for? what you're describing, you know, blah, 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 blah. Well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to dismiss it, you know, and I, I really honestly thought, wow, you know, this guy is sharp. I thought I, you know, I thought I was smart. I thought I was going to, hey, I'll get him, you know, the Oregon Constitution says criminal or civil, ha-ha, which is this? Well, he had an answer, but yet, even with his answer, he decided best to just get you out of here. Too close. It's like one of those moments in uh, Planet of the Apes where they see one of the one of the people actually can speak. Yeah. And all of the monkeys and apes that are running the courtroom say, "My god. Yeah. The monkey can talk." Yeah. You know, that yeah. was that was that was the moment for you there. That was like, "My god, this monkey can talk." That's yep. the way the court looked at it. Yeah, because I hey, I thought, you know, I I thought, "Okay, I'm smart. I'm going to do the hey, he's, he's going to have no answer to this, right?" And then he did, and I thought, oh, man. And then he decided, oh, well, dismissing. And I'm like, I really was, at the time, I, I walked out confused. Yeah. You know, I didn't know why. I, I didn't even think, oh, I must have been too close. I I must be on to something. Well, I wasn't that smart. See, I thought I was that smart, but I wasn't, you know, because I walked out going, I have no idea what just happened here. And... I've been in court several times when I've walked out going, I have no idea what just happened here. 
I well, mean, I, I understand. I know what happened, but I don't know why. Yeah, and they won't give you. They won't no. give you lessons. No, they don't. If they were forced to tell you what happened, all right, we dismissed the case, and here's why. Well, think how helpful that would be. Yeah. Every time somebody got won a case and they had to admit on the record why you won, boy, that document would hit the Internet and be pretty popular. Yeah, it would. Yeah, you could get some traffic with that. This is how the system really works. (laughs) Yeah, I've had um, a couple of instances where it was the uh, in the interest of justice, whatever that means. Yeah, in the interest of justice. Yeah, yeah. interest of not getting sued for running a criminal enterprise. Yeah, <laughs> I think we'll just, you know, because, uh, yeah, I, I mean, that was another thing. I mean, I went into this place, and, man, I, this is a little town called Central Point. Yeah. I don't know how many people, maybe 15,000 people. Yeah. And they had a courtroom there. And, I, you know, again, another time with no no license, no, you know, none of that. And so I go in there, and I, I had already filed in paperwork and everything else, and I had a stack of paperwork to bring, and I was ready to, ready to go. And this place was, I, I can't even, I don't know, maybe 200 people all in there waiting to be fleeced. Yep. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. You know, so I sat down and somebody's calling my name. So I go and they go, oh, yeah, uh, you know, hey, your case has been dismissed in the interest of justice. <laughs> like, no, oh, good. Can I get that in writing? And and the blank stare I got was like, what? Blank stare? Oh, you're from, yeah. Yeah, when I said, can I get that in writing? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, we'll mail it to you. I said, I can't have that. I said, because frankly, I don't, I, I, I said, don't know. You don't know when you're when you're well off, Frank. <laughs> well, actually, I I was I'm I'm that paranoid because I told the the lady clerk I said, and I was being nice about it, but I just said, look, to tell you the truth, I just don't trust you all that much, and mm-hmm. uh, I don't want to be walking out of here just to get arrested for oh you left the courtroom oh you were you know uh uh-uh. uh I wanted in writing that this was dismissed so I I can feel you know safe about leaving here mm-hmm. oh okay well uh just it's gonna be about 15 minutes so mm-hmm. don't go wait by the by the uh they had a big desk out front where they collected everybody's money from and uh so i went and waited and they gave me you know one little sheet of paper saying dismissed you know the court thing and all that so i felt a lot better about it but you know that may seem paranoid but uh i don't put anything past them at all. No, I understand. You know. I understand. You can't trust them as far as you can throw them. Oh, you're dismissed. Sure, go. Hey, have oh, a yeah. nice day. <laughs> yeah, I get out on the sidewalk and I get shot down for escape or something. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. So no. <laughs> yeah, but it, that was the interest of justice right there too. So, it, and the interest of justice, I think, was you know what. I don't think it had anything to do with anything I had to say or anything. It was that I had no. a lot to say, and you were going to take up a lot of time, and we got 200 sheep to shear here. And we, got, we don't want the sheep to hear what you've got to say. Well, that too, but you're going to hold us up. You're going to yeah. take a lot of time that we're not going to make as much money as we're going to make by just getting you get out of here. Just I, I got a ticket one time in Minnesota. I lived in Illinois. And we'd traveled through Wisconsin, me and my stepfather in an MGB that I had. 
and we're going up to an uncle's uh, cabin up in the Minnesota woods to do some fishing. And I, this goes back about 19, this is in the 1960s. And we're cruising down the road, and I'm just moving with traffic. We're all exceeding the speed limit. The speed limit, I think, was 70 or 75. We're all going 80, 85, something like that. But I'm not, I'm not going any faster than anybody else is. All of a sudden, here comes the cop, and he, he stops us. And I get to talking to him. I said, look, I drive a truck. I can't afford to do this ticket, you know, blah, 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 blah. And the cop kind of took pity on me. All right? And he wrote me the ticket, and it was like a Friday. And the ticket would be heard in court on Monday. Now, most people, what we come to understand is they gave the ticket to everybody who was out of state. I was coming from Illinois. There was a whole state of Wisconsin between me and my home and where this ticket was going to be heard. And they didn't expect me to, they didn't expect me to show up. We went to the ticket. Right? We got in there, and the court had a stack of tickets about a foot high to process. <laughs> And there wasn't one person in the courtroom besides me and my stepdad. I I was the only one who showed up. And they were waiting for the cop to come in. And they they called him on the radio and the rest of that said, come on down here, you got to testify against this guy. And the cop never showed. He wouldn't come in. And then lunchtime came up, and they said, all right, everybody's going to take lunch. Come back here, be back here at 1 o'clock or 1.30 or whatever. All right, we came back at 1.30 or whatever it was. Nobody else was there. And the judge was just so mad he could see. He was ready to spit nails. And he finally said, all right, this case against you is dismissed. But don't you come through here again. You understand? <laughs> and what he was pissed about is they had a foot stack of tickets. And I'll bet you that every one of them was from an out-of-state driver. And they were just going to take the money, take the money, take the money, take the money. And it would have taken them a half hour to process all the tickets. It was just automatic because nobody showed up. Because I showed up, they wound up spending four hours. It interfered with their golf games or seeing their mistress <laughs> down at the at the local uh, motel or whatever. And they were angry about it, but they turned us loose and we didn't get the ticket. And there was one lesson there that we'd learned, I'd learned in Chicago when I was delivering pizza. <laughs> you always go to court on the tickets because sometimes you win even if you, just for dumb, irrational reasons. I've told it before. I had one case, one judge dismissed the case. I had tickets for going the wrong way on a one-way street, speeding in the rain, running a stop sign. I don't remember what else they had on me besides that, but at least three, four tickets, all right? Three, four different charges, and the judge said, you're delivering pizza. I said, yeah, and he said, where Where do you deliver from? I said, uh, Frank's Pizzerino. That was the name of the place. Frank's Pizzerino. Frank's Pizzerino, judge says, I order from Frank's Pizzerino. <laughs> Case dismissed. Bang! The pizza must go through. That's and that's right. what he said, and I've told this story before, but uh, <laughs> sometimes you just win without being smart. Oh, yeah. So you go. Absolutely, because what they do around here a lot, and it's all about, hey, what's profitable? Yeah. The cops don't show up. Yeah. Now, I okay, it could just be me, but, you know, I mean, when, okay, that same city, Central Point, that had 200 people in there, Yeah. this other time I showed up there, and this was just for a simple speeding ticket. And then this is the one where I told you that there was that one other lady in there. Just her and me. This is in the same city that I know they can fill up the courtroom with tickets. Yeah. But there's just me and her. 
Mm-hmm. Same cop wrote the tickets on both of us. He don't show up for either one of us. Well, gee, what do you want to do? I said, I want you to dismiss this ticket. Well, okay. Then he dismisses the ticket. Yeah. And then he turns to the lady. What do you want to do? I just want to pay my fine. Uh-huh. And that's Thank when God I, for dumb people. That's what I just. As long as there's people like that lady, those judge will never be unemployed or impoverished. I had to look at him and say, "Can I go?" He says, "Yeah," because I was going to say things that were going to get me in trouble because I, I I wanted to help that lady, but I stopped because I thought, you know, sometimes you can't help people. Yeah, I know that. You know, I mean. And look, even try, you know, I mean, she's going to look at you like you're speaking in tongues. Yeah, you know, even though... She's going to think you must have come out of a spaceship or something. You've been zooming people up, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, zooming yeah, them up and they would do experiments. I was beside myself. I think I was talking to myself the whole way home because I, it's mm-hmm. like, so you didn't notice what just happened right in front of you? Yeah. You know, what do you want to do? I want you to dismiss the ticket. Okay. Yeah. Dismissed. Yeah. Now, what do Amazing. you want to do? Oh, what's the right answer here? Yeah, you know. <laughs> but hey, you know this is this is part of what is the problem. People and, and now here's the thing that I don't understand. This is a person that actually went to court to fight the ticket. Yep. I that's the part that confuses me. Somebody told her to go. Her husband, her boyfriend, somebody said, you got to fight this. And she said, okay, I'll fight it. Yes, I think you're right. I'll fight it. And then she got there. She said, I'm afraid to fight it. And so you saw what you saw, or at least that's one possible explanation. Yeah, I, I was baffled, honestly. I was really... Well, it wasn't the first time, I'm sure. That's part of the fun of this. I mean, it is an adventure. It is. It really it's is. It's not just a job, because it doesn't pay enough to be a job, so it must be an adventure. <laughs> That's it. We're out of time, we Frank. Are. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on the program. Thank all of you for listening. And we will be back next Tuesday night. Hope you'll tune in at that time to the American Independence Hour. I'm Alfred Adisk. saying good night. And in the meantime, with the good Lord bless you, me, and Frank, the co-host and or producer. Good night.
Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. AVR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific.
yo. <laughs> I gotta have a mind to paint a plywood sign and nail it up on a knotty pine tree. Saying I was here first, this is my piece of dirt and your rambling don't rattle me. Good evening, all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is Tuesday, April 12, 2016. It's about 8.08 out here. If that's when it is where you're at, we are, in fact, live. And you can participate in the show by calling in 800-932-1980, 800-932-1980. You can also participate by going to the chat room, which is located at our website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You'll see the chat link once you get there, and you just click on that. It's really easy, Okay can also contact me directly, which I am seeing it now, Yahoo Instant Messenger. My screen name is AVRN Talk. I don't know what's wrong with that crazy thing, but every once in a while, I'll see somebody messages me, 
you know, the, it'll blink or whatever it does. And, and then I'll go look, and there'll be nothing there. And then I'll type something, and that won't show up either. So I don't know. It, it, it just <laughs> doesn't happen all the time. It's just one of those uh, intermittent problems. All right, let's get to some news, huh? I'm going to do something a little different. Well, not really, because it, it's going to revolve back around. <laughs> it's going to revolve back around to politics. I'm sorry. It's just the way it is, but... Uh, here's the headline. Goldman Sachs will pay $5 billion for fraudulent sales of toxic debt. No one will go to jail. Now, you know, the uh, in Iceland, they sent their bankers to jail. And then, of course, their legislature changed the law and let them all out early, which uh, has facilitated some problems in Iceland for the remaining uh, legislators there because people are not, uh, you know, they're just not, that. that's not, what they wanted to see. <laughs> okay? That's not what they wanted to see at all. They want to see these people stay in prison. But, hey, at least they got them into prison, you know, for a little while. Not like here, where they never go to they never go to prison here. You know, just like we're seeing here. No one at Goldman Sachs will go to jail despite the company's world-destroying multi-billion dollar frauds that accumulated in its unloading billions worth of worthless mortgage-backed securities on its customers just before the crash. Goldman's settlement requires it to admit that it knowingly committed these frauds for years on end. Again, though, no one goes to jail. The company will pay $5 billion in fines. Now, that sounds like a lot of money, and that would be a lot of money for me, but imagine if I committed a crime that made me, oh, I don't know, a trillion and a half dollars. Would five billion really be a big fine? I mean, if I didn't have to go to jail or anything, I just had to give you five billion dollars of my one and a half trillion? Wow, that's a pretty nice deal. The deal was negotiated. They call this negotiated. So wait a minute. Negotiated? Okay, so you committed trillion-dollar fraud for years on thousands of people, and somebody's negotiating with you? How? Well, where's this come from? What do you mean negotiating? What kind of Justice Department is this? Negotiating? Is that what happens with you? You get to go negotiate? Or do you go to trial? Hey, buddy, we're not negotiating. We got you dead to rights. You broke the law big time. You hurt a lot of people, and you're all going to jail. There's no negotiating. How about this? You know, I love this. Uh, there's a scene from, uh, oh, what? it's a Bruce Willis movie. I think it's called The Fifth Element. And uh, there's some security guards outside this room, and there's some aliens in there, and they just shot up a bunch of the security guards, and, you know, they're saying blah, 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 and it's like the security guards are kind of scared, and they don't know what to do, and Bruce Willis, you know, the guy's like, well, uh, the aliens want to negotiate. 
And he looks at the security guards. He's like, can I, you know, mind if I do this? And he goes, no, 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 go ahead. So he goes in and shoots the leader in the head and asks everybody else, who else wants to negotiate? You know, I, I mean, really, come on. The deal was negotiated through the Residential Mortgage-Backed Securities Working Group, a joint state and federal working group formed in 2012 to share resources and continue investigating wrongdoing in the mortgage-backed securities market prior to the financial crisis. New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, who serves on the working group, says the funds obtained by the settlement will go toward helping residents keep their homes and rebuild their communities. Really? What about all the people that Goldman Sachs ripped off? Do they get anything? Oh, no, they don't get anything. You know why they don't get anything? They don't get anything because that dirtbag Loretta Lynch, she deliberately... Let things pass until the uh, the victims couldn't get any restitution. She protected the banks in the Second Circuit, okay, so that they didn't have to pay any restitution. She sat on everything until, oh, gee, we'd love to get you some restitution, but, you know, the statute of limitations ran out. Sorry, hon, nothing for you, but we get $5 billion. This settlement like those before it, ensures that these critical programs, such as mortgage assistance, principal forgiveness, and code enforcement, will continue to get funded well into the future. Well, yippee, code enforcement. So they're going to use the fine to pay for code enforcement, because that's really what we all want, isn't it? We want more things enforced upon us. I tell you, folks, this whole country is about to go up in flames. And you know what? I'm not going to be sorry to see it go the way it is. Oh, sure, I've got memories of, oh, when I thought America was better and, I, you know, things were better than they are now. But you know what? I see the direction things are going. And you know what the other thing is? You know what the real problem is? The problem is not how bad it is. The problem is how bad it's going to get. And that's not just because of the criminals in the banking system. It's because of the people walking around the streets. That's right, the college-educated millennium morons out there. When these guys hit 20, 30, 40 years old, it's over, folks. It's over. Because you know what? They will sell their birthright for a bowl of crap because they don't know any better. And to tell you the truth, I prefer not to see that happen. I prefer to see the whole crap house go up in flames before that ever happens. And I think I'm going to get my wish. Because this is going to be one interesting summer, don't you think? I mean, we have the Democratic National Convention, we have the Republican National Convention, which of course is getting a lot more play in the media because, well, of Donald Trump, because he is kind of a showboat, and the media is going to cover, you know, whatever Trump does, but you know what, Democrats are not any happier than, than the Republican base. 96% of Republicans say, hey, whoever gets the most votes, not the majority of the votes, not the 12 whatever, 
but the ma- the majority. I mean, the, you got the most. Okay, so what? You got 40% of the vote. Well, your competitor only got 30. You win. 96% of Republicans say, look, whoever wins should get the nomination. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Well, not to the party leaders. Then you have on the Democratic side, which is not getting as much press, but you have Bernie Sanders. Now, look, I don't agree with Bernie Sanders' politics or really much of anything, but he has won, and not just won by a little bit. Oh, yeah, a couple of the races were a little close, but a few of them were complete blowouts. He has won seven of eight of the last primaries. And yet, Clinton keeps getting more delegates. That seem right to you? I mean, it doesn't seem right to me that she gets any delegates, that she's even allowed to run for president. I mean, you shouldn't be allowed to run for president from a jail cell, and that's where she ought to be. But, hey, that's in a perfect world, right? But, speaking of uh, Goldman Sachs, when we talk about Goldman Sachs, we have to talk about Rafael Cruz. That's right. And I and I do mean the guy who you know is Ted. Well, his name is Rafael, okay? His wife. Yeah. Everybody out there knows that she works for Goldman Sachs. But here's the deal. She does more than just work for Goldman Sachs. Okay, she's not just a simple employee. She doesn't mop the floors at Goldman Sachs, right? She is on the organizing committee of Goldman Sachs. Okay, she has been sent to the CFR as a Goldman Sachs representative. She has sat, get this, on the North American Union committee or whatever they call it. Oh, yeah. This is not good, is it? Folks, we've been sold a bill of goods with Ted Cruz that is a lot worse than people are being led on to believe because Goldman Sachs, oh, by the way, the news will tell you, well, you know, she gave up her job at Goldman Sachs. No, she did not give up her job. She is on a leave of absence. That's different than quitting. That's like Eric Holder on a leave of absence from where he was working. They just locked his office till he came back, and he's back in his office now. That's not quitting. It's different. Here's some bad news. Everybody's worried about Fukushima. Well, you know, which, okay, we can worry about that. I mean, that's something to worry about. But we live in a country with a whole bunch of nuclear power plants. And guess what? All of them, all of them are operating past their designated lifespan. Did you know that? They were supposed to be shut down. The, 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 the newest one was supposed to be shut down 10 years ago, but they keep running them because, well, we just can't do without it because, you know, uh, global warming. <laughs> yeah, sure. That, and they don't know how to shut them down. 
the fact is, they're all, but this is like going, well, I know my car is supposed to be, you know, retired now, but I'm just going to keep driving until we have a wreck. And that's the way they're running the nuclear power plants. And here we have high radiation triggers alert at Browns Ferry Nuclear Power Plant. The Tennessee Valley Authority activated the lowest of four emergency notifications Wednesday afternoon when high radiation levels were detected in a main steam line at the newest reactor at the Browns Ferry Nuclear Power Plant in Alabama. TVA detected the high radiation condition around 3.35 p.m. Central Daylight Time on Wednesday, but the notice of an unusual event was cleared almost immediately. TVA spokesman John Hobson said the high radiation levels were quickly lowered to acceptable levels and that there was no risk of radiation exposure or other safety problems to the public or plant workers. How many times have we heard that story, and how many times has it been a lie. More than once? I believe so. Okay, so everybody's aware of a breathalyzer. You know, all right, we're going to have to give you the breathalyzer to make sure you're not drinking, that you haven't been drinking or whatever. Well, now, guess what? They have something called the textilizer. Yes, I'm not making this stuff up. I know, it sounds like something out of some, you know, joke site or something. But um, now there's a so-called textilizer device to help the authorities determine whether someone involved in a motor vehicle accident was unlawfully driving while distracted. I want to make a point here. To determine whether someone involved in a motor vehicle accident was unlawfully driving while distracted. Now, this is what they're saying now, okay? Because nobody right now would be okay with, okay, pull it over, get out of the car, give me your cell phone, we're going to see if you were texting while you were driving. Yeah, I don't have, you weren't involved in an accident or anything like that, but I see you got a cell phone there, and that makes me believe that you were probably using it. Just kind of like if you've got an open container of booze on the front seat of your car, I got to figure you were drinking it. Right? The roadside technology is be, being developed by Celebrite. Now, have you, do you remember that company? I'll give you a second. That's the company that cracked the iPhone for the FBI. You think those morons at the FBI did that themselves? Come on, man. Uh, the Israeli firm that many believe assisted the Federal Bureau of Investigation in cracking the iPhone at the center of the heated decryption battle with Apple. Under the first-of-its-kind legislation proposed in New York, drivers involved in accidents would have to submit their phone to roadside testing from a textilizer to determine whether the driver was using a mobile phone ahead of the crash. In a bid to get around the Fourth Amendment right to privacy, the textilizer allegedly would keep conversations, contacts, numbers, photos, and application data private. And you know how you know that? Because they're telling you so, and you can trust them, right? Uh-huh. It will solely say whether the phone was in use prior to a motor vehicle mishap. 
Further analysis, which might require a warrant, could be necessary to determine whether such usage was via hands-free dashboard technology and to confirm the original finding. The legislation was prompted by intense lobbying from the group Distracted Operators Risk Casualties. Man, you got to be kidding me. Is this like Mad Mothers or something, except for cell phones? The son of its co-founder, Ben Lieberman, was killed in 2011 by a distracted driver in New York. The proposed law has been dubbed Evan's Law in memory of 19-year-old Evan Lieberman. When people were held accountable for drunk driving... That's when positive change occurred, Lieberman said in a press release. It's time to recognize that distracted driving is a similar impairment and should be dealt with in a similar fashion. This is a way to address people who are causing damage. You know what, folks? Guys like this Lieberman should be told to leave the country, get the hell out, never come back. Look, I'm sorry for his kid's death and all that. You know, but people die. You take a risk when you go out on the road, and that's just the way it is. People get distracted over all kinds of things, not just their cell phone. Oh, looks like we got a caller. Go ahead, caller. Good evening, Frank. Jay from Washington. Hey, Jay. Thank you for taking my call. Well, you you know, you're touching on something here, Frank. Uh, so I had to call in. As you know, I'm a truck driver. And it is unbelievable the amount of people that I see not only using cell phones, like they're looking at them while they're driving and doing whatever, but tablets, I mean, like iPads, on their lap, holding them up and, you know, like down below the steering wheel and, and doing, like, stuff. Jay? It's, it's unbelievable. You know what? I'm not right. even a truck driver. And I think, what was it, like three weeks ago or something, I saw somebody with a tablet that had it in their steering wheel and w was using it like a television, kind of watching watching whatever it was they were watching oh. while they were going oh. down the road. So, you know. Yeah, dude, look, they got these uh, center consoles now, right? You know, these new cars. And, mm -hmm. and I think they started off as like they were just like originally like a GPS or something like that, right? Well, now you can watch... DVDs. Like, you can put a DVD in there, right? Now, you're supposed to do this, I guess. Yeah, when you're pulled over <laughs> to the side of the road. Right, but I've seen that, too. I, so that's why I called in. Now, I'm not in favor, obviously, of, of this textilizer thing, but I did hear about that, and thanks for covering it. But but I'm telling you, man, it's it's a bad deal. And I guarantee you, Frank, I see horrific accidents out there, and I think... Single car accidents, Frank, I, I, I see. Just the other night, I saw a car, and as I'm approaching it, I'm coming down the freeway, and I see these lights off, you know, on off the side of the road. And I'm like, that's odd. What, what, what's going on? I get closer and closer, because there's a guardrail, right? This car is several hundred yards now past, like, the guardrail, right? But off the road, like in the bushes, but it's like a drainage ditch, and there's a couple, there's like four or five other cars pulled over. Now, this guy, what was he doing? Was he texting or watching a movie and drifted off the road and then ended up that far, you know, in the drink? I oh, mean, the on, car was look, mangled. And... Look on the bright side. Maybe he was just drunk. 
I mean, look, I don't, I don't want to make light of this because people die on the highways, and, and that, you know, it's a, it's a tragedy for people's families. But we also have to start realizing we don't live in a bubble. Life is dangerous. Oh, no, people no, no. die. Right. See, look, you know, distracted driving has always been around. I mean, I've been driving truck for 30 years. I've, I've watched people read books, I mean, when people used to do that. Sure, or their I've head under people. the dashboard trying to get their radio to work. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, come on, yeah. you know, I've yeah. seen that. Right, you know, leaned over, you know, steering with their foot, you know, trying to roll the passenger side window up or Yeah, something. I mean, you know, yeah. this is just something else to be distracted with. Right, right. Women putting makeup on, people eating. I don't, is it different? I don't think so. It's just. It's just another thing, like you said. So, I don't know. I just thought I'd call in. Well, you see, my look, if they were just going to only do this and say, okay, look, if there's an accident and you got a cell phone, let's see it. You know, oh, all right, maybe I could I could say, all right, okay. You know. Well, can't it, they already do that? I mean, it's a, uh, subpoena phone records from the company ah, and blah, blah. But they blah. have to subpoena them. You see, because they're going to do a law, they're doing this law in New York State that basically utilizes implied consent. That, oh, we don't need a warrant anymore, Jay. Just by you getting a driver license, you've, you've consented to this. Yeah, that's not going to fly. That's, that's well, not they, they flew, hey, it flew with, the, with drunk driving. It flew with the breathalyzer. Isn't it? Oh, uh... <laughs> you see, and uh, well, and my, my uh, problem is not even that. That okay, so there's an accident. Everybody wants to find out what happened. Fine, you know, I could, I could maybe swallow that. But you see, I know how it goes. What's it right, going to be right. then? After they do right. this for a while, it's going to be, oh uh, hi, you didn't use your uh, turn signal. Uh, let me see your phone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you you, no, you don't get to yeah. deny you know you don't get to tell me no because you have a driver license you have implied consent and hey you know what Jay if you don't let us see your phone right now you'll lose your license for a year just like oh, if yeah. you refuse a breathalyzer that's yeah, where they're that's going a good point okay that's a good jeez it's the creep it's the creep that they that right, they have right. you know that's what I'm right. against it's not so much that oh this is a terrible idea and it's bad no. It's that, look, I know they're going to start here, and then they're going to go on and on and on and on, and it's going to creep into one more violation of my rights. Which is unfortunate because, you know, guys like me and you, now I'm not saying we're, but we have common sense, and, I mean, nobody thinks distracted driving is, is a good thing. And, and people just, and look, I'm calling and saying that it's, it's a bad thing, even talking on the phone on a Bluetooth. And I can tell you that, that, I, and I do that at times, and I get distracted even while I'm on the Bluetooth. Mm-hmm. And so I say to myself, man, uh, you know, so I don't answer my phone that often any longer when I'm in the truck, even though I have a Bluetooth, because it's just, you can get in an accident. I mean, I don't know. It's, so it's... No, that's so what I'm saying, is that I'm not, I, I don't think it's such a right, terrible right. idea by itself. Right. But it's never by itself. No, and again, again, exactly. You and I, we, you know, we have a common sense bone in our body, and and our governments don't. They don't do this for our benefit. I mean, they, it's, maybe they initially say, oh, we're going to, this is for your safety, and 
But but then it's not. It's like red light cameras. So that's for safety. Really? Well, yeah. they just said the city of Linwood up here in, in Washington. I think it's the only city in King County that has red light cameras. I don't know if that's true or not. But they get more than 5% of their budget from red light cameras. And, and they said this on a, in the report. And I'm like, okay, I thought it was all about safety. <laughs> so if it's all about safety, why? What's, you see what I'm saying? So oh, absolutely. It's not about safety. Okay. And I can see then where this is going. Yeah, like you're you're saying. Oh, so like, uh, just, like, like. So why did you why did you make the yellow light go from five seconds to three seconds? Was that for safety mm-hmm. too? Three seconds. Uh, some of these yellow lights. I mean, it it, it it was it. Did it turn yellow even? <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> yeah. holy moly. Well, you, you see, know? you get to see a lot more of that than me because you are a professional truck driver and you're out there all the time and you get to see this stuff. I I. I go out once a week, and I, I, you know, I see enough to disturb me right, about it. But I mean, you know, the thing oh, is, yeah. you know, but the thing is, I've watched that. I, I know lights here in Medford that used to be. I went through there all the time, and I know how long the yellow light would last. Mm-hmm. They don't last that long anymore, and that's for safety. What? That's for safety. Maybe they think that. Well, I don't know, maybe it's like a training thing. It's like, well, they, they've ran a 100-yard dash in 12 seconds, and now they're doing it in 10. Maybe we're just getting better at it, they thought, and they're all response time. Mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> maybe like they that. just figured like, that, hey, hey, I know what we'll do. We'll just give you less time. We got you used to five seconds, and that's what you'll right, think. Right. But it'll now be three, and you got a ticket. Right. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, for, hey, it's, it's, for, it's for your safety, though. Yeah, but it's for your safety. Though, because yeah. you're, a lot safer. you're a lot safer, Jay, if you just send us a check. That's the government's well, you know way what? of looking at things, you know. Hey, man, I mean, think about it. I mean, if you have less money, then you you probably would tend not to, to spend more than you had, and you would probably stay home, and, and you would probably be more safe, probably be more safe staying home. Uh, you know, you can get hurt going to the movies. You get something, you could fall and trip off a curb if you had, dis, dis, you know, more disposable income. So, yeah, Frank, maybe they're... I should have hey, never left the bubble. I, 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 you know, I've told myself that many times. It's too dangerous out here. I'm telling you. Hey, look, uh, I, I know you've got to take break here. I do. Now, city of Seattle. Uh, you know, they, they want to. There's this. Re, they want. They want to repeal the, the bicycle helmet law. Well, the city council up there, they'll have none of that. No, and they, they've got these studies out there and how much it helps people and saves people's lives and blah 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 blah. Well, then why is it a twenty five dollar fine? You know, uh, you know, if it was for safety again, it gets go back to that. If it's and for you safety, know, then why? You know, I uh, <laughs> I've I've looked at these these bicycle helmets, and uh, they're nothing but uh, a piece of styrofoam with some uh, a little plastic shell around it. I mean, a little plastic shell. I can stick. My I have finger, a bike helmet. I can I, stick my yeah. finger through it. Okay. And they're very light. They're extremely. Light. I have a good. This one. This is supposed I use, to protect in, me from what exactly? Well, uh, you've ridden a bike, I'm, I'm, I guess, Frank, and you probably crashed on a bike as a kid, and you didn't have a helmet on. And, yeah, and somehow I'm I'm dead now. I know. <laughs> so, where are you? The thing is, you know, I, I, my point is, I don't think that little bicycle styrofoam thing on my head is going to do a darn thing for me if I go through a windshield. No, well, no, I'm, of course I don't, no. you know, or I get run down by a car. Uh, A Carl crashed that. You know what? I think my head would stand up better to being run over than that (laughs) helmet would. Well, 
I mean, yeah, so exactly, you know. So what hey, good is it doing? It's nothing but show that if you don't have it, you owe us 25 bucks. Right. Do I think it's a good idea, maybe, perhaps, to wear a helmet? Uh, okay, maybe. But maybe for a kid who's helmet. just learning how to ride a bike and you don't want him to hit his sure. skull on a sidewalk or something. Right, but if right. you're out on the road right. with cars, that helmet ain't going to do you anything. Do you any good? I yeah, mean, it's just going to be more... It, 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 it's, it's just going to be more debris for them to, to pick out of your skull during the autopsy. All it is is a uniform that if you ain't got it on, you owe us 25 bucks. There you go. You know, that's really what it comes to because uh, go check them out, folks. I mean, they, they sell them at, you know, Walmart. They sell them at all kinds oh, of stores, yeah. man. Sure. They're, yeah. they're, they're just, they're a joke, I think. I don't know who decided, well, hey, we can sell anything. You know, we can, <laughs> we can, you <laughs> right, know, hey, right. these people buy anything. We'll just tell them it's right. for safety. Hey, if a helmet's a helmet, then why aren't our troops in Iraq wearing bicycle helmets? But really, no yeah, like there you go. Helmets with, uh, you know. Oh, before I go, helmet. I got to tell you about this helmet story here. I had a motorcycle for a while, a couple years, so I had to go get a helmet. And I didn't want to get one of these full face things. I didn't even want to get a helmet, but you know, I didn't want to get a fine either. So I went and I started looking into it. Do you know what the rule is for the helmet? Everybody thinks these helmets are well, they're tested and they're you know they're approved and this and that. And the other thing, look, it's got a sticker. It says DOT on it, Department of Transportation. ANSI, oh, ANSI approved, whatever ANSI is. A N what is it? S I. Well, some kind of ANSI approved. At the time whatever here that. in Oregon, the only requirement was that it had a DOT sticker on it. Well, I looked into that, and that DOT sticker. The Department of Transportation had no regulations whatsoever to issue any stickers for any helmets whatsoever, okay? They just didn't have it. They just didn't do it. So helmet manufacturers would just print up DOT stickers and stick them on there because it just said... DOT approved. It just had to... No, it just had to say DOT. It just had to say DOT. Yeah. Well, there you go. So I got me so I got myself one of these, you know, we used to call them Nazi helmets, but now they're yeah, American yeah. Army helmets. Uh so I got me an American <laughs> Army helmet and I uh I rode around on the bike like that. So with my DOT sticker on the back so I could be legal. Well, you were good to go, Frank, and you here you are. Yes. You're not dead. And then I owe it all to that helmet. <laughs> Jay, thanks for calling in. I do have to take a break now though, but uh, okay, thanks for taking my call, Frank. Take care. No problem. It's always a pleasure, and uh, we'll take a break. Now we'll be back in a few.
shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water. Every time you leave me, I get mad with you. Well, I'm told I'm 
say I lie for you if you want me to I really don't believe your love is true I'm told I'm almost level with the ground Oh, I feel like this when my baby can't be found Oh, well, I'm told I'm almost level with the ground This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is still Tuesday, April 12, 2016. About 8.49 out here. Went to break a little late, so we're coming back a little late. You can go to the chat room, participate, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com. You'll see the chat link. Click it. Go in. It's easy. Okay, the first song was Kevin McLeod, Whiskey on the Mississippi. The second one was I'm All Tore Down by Freddie King. Okay, let's get to some stuff. Now, I mentioned Goldman Sachs, right? Uh, Let's see here. Heidi Cruz, affiliation with Goldman Sachs. She's on the executive committee of that organization. Executive committee. Executive committee. Okay, that's the name of it. She's not just a mere employee. Okay, Uh, let's see, Uh, Heidi Cruz is listed on a task force member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Oh, she's on the Council of Foreign Relations. That's such a nice group, such a pro-American group, too, isn't they? Ooh. Anyway, yeah, she's on his task force report on the built, get this, on the building a North American Community Committee. Yeah, Mrs. Cruz totally approves of the recommendations contained in the report, which is make the three nations into a single entity, just the same as the European Union. That's Raphael's little love bundle there, okay? Now, here's a little bit of history on Ted Cruz. Uh, After fighting with Fidel Castro against Batista in Cuba, Rafael Cruz Sr. came to the United States in 1957, but he didn't bother to become a citizen until shortly before Rafael Jr.'s campaign for the U.S. Senate. Now, if he really loved the country and thinks as much of it as he says he does, why the 50-year delay in applying for citizenship? Yeah, seems a little opportunistic for him to wait until his son decided to run for the Senate to apply for citizenship. I mean, were they planning on him running for president even then? I would guess they are, with little Heidi on the uh, North American Union Committee of uh, the CFR working for Goldman Sachs. Is this starting to smell bad to you or what? But there's more. Uh, Let's see. Uh... Let's start with Cruz' campaign manager, okay? His name is Chad Sweet. It's pretty well known that Sweet served as chief of staff of the United States Department of Homeland Security. What is less known 
is that prior to that position, Sweet was an investment banker at two firms, Morgan Stanley and, wait for it, Goldman Sachs. Wow, wait a minute. I'm hearing an awful lot about Goldman Sachs with Rafael Cruz, aren't I? Furthermore, he served in the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. Wow, is this, you know, and we wonder how Teddy goes into Colorado and steals all the delegates, how he goes down into Louisiana where he lost and steals all those delegates. We wonder how that can happen. Well, his campaign manager was in the National Clandestine Service. I guess that's a good background for stealing and lying and cheating, isn't it? Okay. Hey, that comes from Sweet's own biography statement. Then there's the Woosley connection. Robert James Woosley, that is, part of Cruz's foreign policy advisory team. Well, he was the former director of the CIA during the Clinton administration. What? Isn't this the guy, Rafael Cruz, that keeps accusing Trump of giving money to Democrats? What? In his book, War in a Time of Peace, David Haberstram states that Bill Clinton chose Woosley for CIA director because the Clinton campaign courted neoconservatives leading up to the 1992 election. It was part of proving to voters that Clinton's promise to be tougher on Taiwan, Bosnia, and human rights in China was for real. You remember, that's when Clinton's policies were being compared to the movie Wag the Dog because of Bosnia mistakes. Woosley got the job, and because the token neoconservative in the Clinton cabinet, in the two years he served as CIA director, so this is two CIA guys Cruz has on his campaign, folks. Uh, you, you, you feel good about that, do you? Anyway... Um, Woosley never had a private meeting with Clinton. Woosley, a Democrat, got his B.A. from Stanford, his M.A. from Oxford University. Oh, he's also a Rhodes Scholar, along with Billy Clinton. Woosley got his law degree at Yale. He was a prominent and active in the anti-Vietnam War movement. Nah, I don't find that a bad thing. I mean, look, if you were on the war in the anti-war movement, it turns out, hey, you were right. Anyway, Woosley was CIA director when Aldrich Ames was arrested for treason and spying against the United States and was harshly criticized for not giving more attention to the Ames leak within the CIA more quickly. Woosley was forced to resign as CIA head, when he refused to terminate anyone at the CIA for not digging Alder James out of his treasonous uh, sewer more quickly than was done. He has served on numerous boards and in advisory roles, and the word global appears in many of the organizations in which he affiliates himself. You getting a picture? Yet why old Raphael hates Trump so much? It's that whole nationalism versus globalism thing going on again. He is only an advisor to Cruz on foreign policy, but Woosley is clearly a neoconservative Democrat. Huh? 
Some now equate hawkish in the Middle East with nation-building and constant ongoing wars as a means to stimulate America's economy. Wow, better living through murder. Isn't this great? Woosley currently is Chancellor of the Institute of World Politics. But Raphael says he's all American, boy. He's just, you know... Oh, God, this guy is such a lying piece of garbage. How about Elliot Abrams? He's also a member of the Ted Cruz Foreign Policy Advisory Team. Abrams is a senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations. He must know Heidi pretty well. He's a CFR leader. Like Woosley, Abrams has a colorful past history. Various Internet biographical sketches describe Abrams as a key figure in the Reagan administration before being convicted of charges related to Iran-Contra. He was later pardoned. But his Iran-Contra involvement is a fact. Many people believe Iran-Contra was a program implemented by Vice President George H.W. Bush, not Reagan. Well, of course. Everything was implemented by George H.W. Bush, not Reagan. Reagan's job was to go out, wobble his head around, and make good speeches. And he did that. But that's all he did. The idea is supported by the admitted involvement of Ollie North, who, when things got turned on paper shredders, and is in fact that North was assigned to the office of the vice president, not Reagan. Those who are as old as I am remember the appointment of Lawrence Welsh, an independent counsel to investigate Iran-Contra. Walsh prepared multiple felony counts against Abrams, but never indicted him. Abrams worked with Walsh. And because of his cooperation, he entered a plea agreement of guilty to two misdemeanors of withholding information from Congress. He paid a $50 fine, was on probation for two years, and was also sentenced to 100 hours of community service. What does this guy work for Goldman Sachs? Let's see. Then we have a guy who sent a message to Iowa voters stating that Ben Carson was returning to Florida with a soft suggestion that those planning to vote for him should vote for Ted Cruz instead. Dan P. Gabriel. Well, he's a former CIA covert officer. He was with the counterterrorism for 10 years, and he is an expert in countering violent extremism, directing counterinsurgency operations and counter... Are you kidding me? This is Ted Cruz's campaign, folks. He's got a bunch of spooks. His wife's a spook who works for the C, uh, the CFR and Goldman Sachs. Uh, you know, I don't know what more you need to know. I mean, come on, somebody, get me some dirt on Trump, would you? Because Trump's starting to look like a saint here. I mean, between Hillary Clinton and Rafael Cruz, oh, and the communist Bernie Sanders... I, look, I don't want to support Trump, okay? I really don't want to. But, you know, I mean, these people are really leaving me very little choice. Uh, I wonder if Glenn Beck's telling everybody this. Oh, I'm sure he is. How about Mark Levin? Is he telling everybody this, too? Hell no, he's not telling anybody anything. He didn't even tell people that, oh, yeah, I support Ted Cruz. But, yeah. My fiancé's son is a paid campaign worker for Cruz. Oh, yeah. Oh, that, that skipped my mind. But no, really, that wouldn't uh, 
that wouldn't uh, influence my my view. Just like, you know, hey, million-dollar payoffs don't influence your senators. So what? Corporations give them free trips around the world, gives them stock tips that make them millionaires. What? They don't owe them anything. That's just a favor because they like them. Come on, man. How dumb is everybody in this country? I mean, really. Anyway, I got to go. I'll be back again tomorrow. We got good stuff coming up, so don't go anywhere. And as always, thanks for listening. Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. The shooting began at midnight, and everyone ran toward their homes. People started hollering. Children began crying. It was a complex operation. 27 targets were hit simultaneously. My family, some of my family get shot, and I don't know nothing else that's happened. I just was keep going because I was fighting to die. I was fighting to die. The goal was not to level the place, but to minimize damage to property, and most important of all, to minimize casualties, uh, and that was accomplished. My daughter did not belong to any group. She had nothing to do with Noriega. She was innocent. She had nothing to do with all of this. And they killed her. If I had to do it again, I would do it again. Because the cost was high. It was men, women, civilians, and military that gave their lives. Not for us. They gave their lives for democracy, for liberty for freedom, and I don't mind paying any price under the sun to be free.
mommy, tell mommy. On December 19, 1989, while Panamanians were getting ready for the Christmas holidays, the United States was secretly mobilizing 26,000 troops for a midnight attack. approaching. They were close. The lights went out and the helicopters began to shoot. People were running left and right without direction, without knowing where they were going. It wasn't just machine gun fire. They were bombs. The noise was frightening. hear gunfire coming from all directions and a strange noise that we had never heard before. People were frightened, running, wondering what was going on. The sky was completely red and there was a tremor you could feel throughout the city. The invasion was swift, intense and merciless. When it was over, thousands lay dead and wounded, and the country was in shambles. Millions of U.S. tax dollars were swallowed up in three days of brutal violence. The strategy was considered a stunning military and political success. The operation continues. Uh... In many ways, the invasion served as a testing ground for the Persian Gulf War one year later. It is also an indication of the kinds of intervention the United States may undertake in the years to come. But still, big questions remain. What exactly happened during the invasion of Panama? And why? U.S. soldiers and Marines launched their attack in the early morning darkness, backed by swarms of helicopters. As the invasion unfolded, Americans stayed glued to their TVs and newspapers for coverage. But how much of the real picture did the media give them? The performance of the mainstream news media in the coverage of Panama has been just about total collaboration with the administration. Not a critical murmur, not a critical perspective, not a second thought. The story that the White House was pushing was getting this so-called narco-terrorist in a net. And that was the, the thrust of all of the coverage. Uh, when are we going to get Noriega? Have they let Noriega get away? By late today, they had taken control of much of the country, but their chief target, General Manuel Noriega, escaped. Manuel Noriega belongs to that special fraternity of international villains, men like Gaddafi, Idi Amin, and the Ayatollah Khomeini, whom Americans just love to hate. The White House announced a $1 million reward for his And today, capture. the Justice Department set up a hotline to take in tips on Noriega's possible whereabouts. 
That hotline number is... They focused on Noriega to the exclusion of what was happening to the Panamanian people, to the exclusion of the bodies in the street, to the exclusion of the number dead, to the exclusion of what happened to the women and children in that country during this midnight invasion. The 1989 U.S. invasion of Panama was no surprise, given the history of relations between these two countries. The United States refused to recognize Panama's independence movement throughout the 1800s. But when the U.S. proposal to build a canal across the isthmus was turned down by Colombia, U.S. policy abruptly changed. In 1903, the United States provided military backup, enabling Panama to secede from Colombia. By doing so, the United States secured the rights to take over the canal project that had been abandoned by the French. In a treaty that was negotiated between the French canal investors and the United States, the Americans were granted sovereign control in perpetuity of a 10-mile-wide strip of land they called the Canal Zone. Panamanians were not included in the negotiations, and no Panamanian signed the treaty. The United States immediately placed the Canal Zone under military control. Teddy Roosevelt was asked by what right he acquired possession of the canal. At least in the honest words of a thief, he said, I took it. Uh, that gives you no right in law, never has, and hopefully never will. The canal project had a dramatic impact on Panama. The U.S. imported cheap labor from the Caribbean, India, and Asia, changing the racial makeup of the country. Thousands of these workers died, and those who remained lived as part of a new racial underclass. They created an apartheid system in Panama, a system that was based on racial segregation, where black people could not live in the same homes, where black people could not even use the same water fountain. The Jim Crow law that was practiced in the southern part of the United States was implemented in Panama by the United States government. After the canal was completed in 1913, the United States continued to expand its military presence and tighten its grip on Panamanian politics. Violent confrontations between Panamanians and the U.S. military grew in the decades that followed. Tensions peaked in 1964 when students tried to exercise Panama's right to fly its flag in the canal zone. Twenty-one Panamanians were killed, and hundreds were wounded in the confrontation. In 1968, Panama's government was overthrown in a military coup. Omar Torrijos, a colonel in the National Guard, emerged as the new leader of Panama. Although he used repressive measures to consolidate his power, he became immensely popular. Torrijos introduced an unexpected period of social reform that benefited Panama's majority population of blacks, Indians, and mestizos. 
it created what some people call a populist reformist process. Umberto Brown, an administrator at the State University of New York, served as a Panamanian diplomat to the United Nations. He was educated in Panama during the Torrijos period. We're for first time in Panama you had a participation of the non-oligarchical people of the nation. Where people like myself get opportunity to, to go to university, get a degree, where the peasants, where people from the Mestizo, they, where, where all the people were deprived of an opportunity for once in our life, were playing important roles in our nation. In 1978, relations between the United States and Panama reached a high point. Jimmy Carter and Omar Torrijos negotiated treaties that abolished the 1903 treaty, establishing a new relationship between the two countries. The Carter-Torrijos treaties required the United States to vacate its military bases and withdraw its troops by the year 2000. Full control of the canal and the canal zone would be turned over to Panama. Although these new treaties were a source of pride for Panamanians, many conservatives in the United States had vehemently opposed them. The Panama Canal Zone is sovereign United States territory, just as much as Alaska is, as well as the states carved from the Louisiana Purchase. We bought it, we paid for it, and General Torrio should be told we're going to keep it. In November 1980, Ronald Reagan defeated Jimmy Carter in a landslide election victory. Eight months later, on the night of July 31, 1981, Omar Torrijos was killed in a fiery plane crash. The circumstances of the incident are unclear. Authorities said that his plane crashed into the side of a mountain. But witnesses said that the plane exploded in flight. Although his death was officially declared an accident, many suspect that he was assassinated. Some think that Manuel Noriega may have been involved. But many are convinced it was the CIA that was responsible. I'm quite convinced that the CIA killed Torrijos. And this I know quite well because I, I work with Torrijos. And Jose Chuchu Martinez was one of Torrijos' closest aides for many years. They killed him precisely at the moment they had to kill him, at the moment that Torrijos was having a big influence over, all, over Central America, uh, especially among the revolutionary movements. They killed Torrijos because Torrijos represented precisely the a political solution of the, of the whole Central American problem. Waiting in the wings for his chance to take power was Colonel Manuel Noriega, the CIA's primary contact in Panama. Noriega was head of Panama's military intelligence and had a long-standing relationship with the United States. He had been on the CIA payroll since the 60s. When George Bush became director of the CIA in 1976, under President Ford, he inherited Noriega as a contact. Despite evidence that Noriega was involved in drug trafficking, Bush kept Noriega on the payroll. In fact, he increased Noriega's salary to more than $100,000 a year and eliminated a requirement 
that intelligence reports on Panama include information on drug trafficking. Over the last 20 years, since Manuel Noriega was recruited by the Central Intelligence Agency to be an asset, he has obviously provided many, many important pieces of information to U.S. intelligence. Peter Kornbluh is senior analyst at the National Security Archive. The archive has assembled hundreds of previously classified government documents revealing the details of Noriega's relationship to U.S. intelligence. They paid him an incredible amount of money, of American taxpayers' money, and obviously decided that his value to them uh, was uh, so important that his drug smuggling and other illegal activity could simply be ignored. I, George Herbert Walker Bush, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States, that I will support and defend... After George Bush became vice president under Ronald Reagan in 1981, he was named head of the administration's anti-drug campaign and once again took responsibility for monitoring Noriega's intelligence activities. Bush, in fact, seems to have been instrumental even according to the documented evidence the administration itself has made available in seeing to it that Noriega was well taken care of. And in fact, Admiral Stansfield Turner, the former director of the CIA under Carter, claims that he cut Noriega off, that he removed him from the U.S. payroll. Bush put him back on and in fact gave him a raise and developed an even closer relationship than it existed before. With support from the CIA, Noriega was able to outmaneuver his rivals, and in August of 1983, he became commander of the Panamanian military. As the Reagan administration expanded its covert war against the Sandinista government in Nicaragua, Noriega became increasingly helpful. Working with the CIA and with Israeli arms dealers, Noriega helped coordinate an arms supply network to provide weapons to contrabases in northern Costa Rica. It is by now undeniable that the same planes that were carrying arms from Panama into Costa Rica were also carrying drugs. And in fact, the people who were the pilots flying those arms to the Contras and flying drugs on up, eventually reaching the United States, have been indicted and are now serving time. This operation essentially gave Manuel Noriega the assurance that they would turn a blind eye to his continued brokering of cocaine deals. In return, for using his network to get the arms to the Contras in northern Costa Rica. Noriega's involvement in the drug traffic really increased his importance as a source for the CIA and as someone who was able to conduct dirty tricks in the region for the CIA. So it's no accident that the CIA became the most prominent defenders of Noriega against the drug charges because that's the sort of thing which CIA clients tend to do. Time after time, when we install strongmen in the third world, 
Because we want them to be strong, we want to see them involved with the strongest local economic forces, which time after time are the drug traffic. Noriega's collaboration with many U.S. covert operations, he was becoming increasingly uncooperative with U.S. objectives in Central America. In 1984, he angered the Reagan administration by hosting Latin American leaders at the Contadora Peace Talks. The talks called for an end to U.S. intervention in Central American affairs. Noriega was not the yes man that the United States wanted him to be. He simply didn't like to be pushed around. He certainly didn't like people like John Poindexter uh, or even William Casey coming down to his uh, villa and telling him what he should do or what he shouldn't do. Then in 1986, the Iran-Contra scandal erupted. Noriega's primary contacts in the administration were now under intense scrutiny. Oliver North was fired. Poindexter was forced to resign, and William Casey fell ill with a brain tumor. So all three of Noriega's major protectors were out of government, uh, and that led quickly to, um, to a shift in U.S. policy. Sentiments within Panama were turning against Noriega as well. For three years, Noriega worked with the DEA in a sting operation codenamed Operation Pisces. In 1987, with Noriega's assistance, authorities arrested hundreds of suspects and froze millions of dollars in Panama's banks, severely disrupting the money laundering business. The financial community was outraged and Noriega's opponents mobilized against him. Back in Washington, Noriega's opponents lobbied and testified against him, accusing him of murder, corruption, and drug running. The U.S. media quickly turned it into a major story. United States, but relations with Panama are under a new cloud tonight because of news reports. Jesse Helms charged today that the military strongman of Panama, Manuel Noriega, is the number one drug trafficker in the Americas. Helms said, depending on how the situation with Noriega, reports from U.S. intelligence have also led to new investigations on Capitol Hill. Faced with increased pressure, both in the U.S. and Panama. Noriega introduced a wave of brutal repression, attacking protesters in the streets and jailing hundreds of opponents. The Reagan administration now openly called for his removal. We do want Noriega out of there and a return to a civilian democratic government. But behind the scenes, the administration was secretly negotiating with Noriega, promising not to indict him on drug charges if he would cooperate with U.S. objectives in Central America. Gabrielle Gemma, director of the Independent Commission of Inquiry on the U.S. invasion of Panama, spoke to Noriega about his negotiations with the U.S. Gerald Noriega told us that there were a number of demands placed on him directly, both through Poindexter and other meetings, where State Department pressured him 
to change the Panamanian government's policy on several issues. He said that by far the most pressing was the demand by the United States that Noriega and the Panamanian government allow the U.S. to expand their military presence in Panama and to renegotiate the treaties to allow them to keep control over the 14 bases, military bases, that presently exist in Panama. Noriega refused to agree to the U.S. demands or to relinquish his power in Panama. In February 1988, two U.S. federal grand juries in Florida indicted Noriega, accusing him of drug trafficking, money laundering, and racketeering. It was the first time a foreign head of state had ever been indicted in the United States. The U.S. now undertook a systematic effort to overthrow Noriega. Economic sanctions were stepped up and additional troops were dispatched to Panama. The United States tonight declared in effect that Panama's General Manuel Noriega is a threat to this country's national security. Mr. Noriega, the drug-indicted, drug-related, indicted dictator of Panama. We want to bring him to justice, we want to get him out, and we want to restore democracy to Panama and so when you read these outrageous charges by a drug related indicted dictator discount them they are total lies still unable to force Noriega from power the United States turned its efforts to influencing the upcoming 1989 Panamanian national elections The Bush administration, working through the CIA and the National Endowment for Democracy, funneled more than $10 million into the opposition's slate of candidates. Presidential candidate Guillermo Endara, a wealthy corporate lawyer educated in the United States, and his vice presidential running mates, Guillermo, Billy Ford, and Ricardo Arias Calderon. If the same scenario that those elections um, occurred and had taken place in the United States, they would have been illegal. In the United States, accepting money from a foreign government for the purpose of influencing a domestic election is illegal. Those elections were irregular from the beginning. How can you call it a fair election? The strategy is was applied in Panama, they applied in Nicaragua, and they were applied to every government who disagree with the U.S. foreign policy. They use economical sanction to starve people then to impose a vote on these people because people vote to get bread when they're hungry. And I don't think that's democracy. The elections were held, the counting of the votes began, it became clear that uh, the PRD would lose the election. And at that point, uh, the, and not for the first time in the history of Panama or many other countries in Central America, the uh, military rulers halted the electoral process. The country erupted in violence as ballot boxes were seized. The U.S. supported candidates who had been leading in vote tallies were brutally beaten on the streets of Panama City in front of rolling TV cameras. Noriega's Dignity Battalion, although none were ever identified. 
It was a photo opportunity that crystallized world public opinion against Noriega. Good evening. The violence in Panama escalated sharply this evening when government goons attacked candidates opposed to General Manuel Noriega were attacked and beaten up on the streets of Panama City. Guillermo Indara, and one of the opposition presidential candidates, was beaten and injured during the day by backers of military Later, the presidential candidate Indara was released from a hospital. It has been confirmed that he was attacked by goons. The following day, President Bush ordered 2,000 additional troops into Panama. I will do what is necessary to protect the lives of American citizens, and we will not be intimidated by the bullying tactics, brutal though they may be, of the dictator Noriega. After the election fiasco, the Panamanian National Assembly declared a state of emergency and appointed Noriega head of state. George Bush now openly encouraged the Panamanian military to revolt against Noriega. Noriega out. We'd love to see him get him out. We'd like to see him out of there. With support and encouragement from the United States, a group of officers from the Panamanian Defense Forces, the PDF, began planning a military coup to overthrow Noriega. They secretly met several times with the U.S. Southern Command to coordinate support for the overthrow. The role to be played by the United States Army was to block certain roads, make sure that certain airfields were not made available for use by elements loyal to or potentially loyal to General Noriega. With these assurances, the insurgent troops launched the coup attempt. They quickly overpowered Noriega's guards seized the PDF headquarters and captured Noriega. But the Americans did not carry through on their promises. Forces loyal to Noriega were allowed to gain entrance and crush the rebellion, freeing General Noriega. President Bush later denied any U.S. involvement in the operation. This was some American operation, and I can tell you that is not true. But I would repeat in the hopes that it be conveyed instantly to Panama, we have no argument with the Panamanian Defense Forces. We have no argument with them. We've had good relations with the Panamanian Defense Forces. But investigative journalist Doug Vaughn, who was in Panama during the failed coup attempt, disputes Bush's claims. That the idea, at least on the American side, was to lead these coup plotters along, to seduce them into believing that they had the support of the United States, and then at a critical moment abandon them so that then the excuse could be made that we had to smash the PDF completely, that we couldn't rely anymore on disgruntled officers inside the Panamanian army to rise up against Noriega, and we would have to do this job ourselves. After the October coup attempt, 1,300 additional U.S. troops were flown into Panama and offensive military equipment was secretly deployed. The U.S. military stepped up its campaign of intimidation and provocation, setting up roadblocks, confronting PDF forces, and conducting offensive military maneuvers outside of U.S. jurisdiction.
here, calling it a security problem. What security? The Panamanian people would never threaten them. They are the ones threatening. They are the ones who charge us with their weapons. What's wrong with them? They charged the bayonets at us. They charged us with their bayonets in order to scare us. They said not to step onto that area, but they're on our side is Panama's jurisdiction. So what the hell's with them? It came to an inch that that day the killing didn't start. Because the tanks and everything were ready to go in to kill the Panamanian people. In the final months before the invasion, the Army Special Operations Command sent a highly secret Delta Force team to Panama. There were numerous actions undertaken by that Delta team which were reported in the United States press as uh, provocations undertaken by Panamanians against the United States. Infiltrations of United States positions, shots fired in the direction of, of uh, United States uh, perimeters and positions. Uh, roughing up of United States citizens in the streets. Sabina Virgo, a national labor organizer, was in Panama just weeks before the invasion. Provocations against the Panamanian people by United States military troops were very frequent in Panama, and they had several results, and in my opinion, probably a couple of different intents. One, I think, was to create an international incident, was to have United States troops just hassle the Panamanian people until an incident resulted. And from that incident, the United States could then say that they were going into Panama for the protection of American life, which is, in fact, exactly what happened. On the night of December 16th, a group of U.S. Marines ran a military roadblock in front of PDF headquarters and were fired on by Panamanian guards. <laughs> Lieutenant Robert Bolivar Paz, a U.S. Marine intelligence officer, was killed. The Marines were reported to be part of a group called the Hard Chargers, known for provoking confrontations with PDF forces. The Pentagon claimed the Marines were unarmed and lost, but local witnesses said that they were armed and exchanged fire with the PDF headquarters, wounding a soldier and two civilians. An American serviceman has been killed in a weekend shooting incident. Another but American official called an example of General Noriega's cruelty and brutality. The death of an American officer, which President Bush condemned today as an outrage. And that in another incident, a Navy officer and his wife were detained. He beaten and threatened with death. She threatened sexually. Another American serviceman also threatening that man's wife. Strong public support for a reprisal was all but guaranteed. Four days later, on December 20th, U.S. troops invaded Panama. The invasion was codenamed Operation Just Cause. Shortly after midnight, U.S. troops simultaneously attacked 27 targets many of which were in densely populated areas. One of the primary targets in Panama City was the headquarters of the Panamanian Defense Forces. 
located in the crowded neighborhood of El Chorillo. U.S. troops shelled the area for four hours before moving in and calling for surrender. They've been seeking this surrender, surrender. We start to hear the helicopters start to bomb the quartel and start to use their, their laser ray and things like that. So we hit, we hit the ground. It soon became clear that the objectives were not limited only to military targets. According to witnesses, many of the surrounding residential neighborhoods were deliberately attacked and destroyed. The helicopters were heavily armed, firing powerful machine guns and rockets, and they were firing indiscriminately. They weren't just looking for military targets. They were firing at many civilians. People were running all over, trying to escape. They shot at everything that moved, without mercy and without thinking whether they were children or women or people fighting. Instead, everything that moved, they shot. We all thought that they would just take Noriega. They said that's what they wanted. They would take him and would respect everyone else. The bombing the bomb been started, been going on for a few, few hours. The soldiers say, tell everybody to come up with their hand on their head, and they direct us to the church. When we were in the church about 6 o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden, the building started to burn in front of the church. The people, then, as they know, they have. The only thing they had was inside the place. They tried to run out to get water to house it. And the American soldiers tell them to get out. Some people, you know, stubborn, they try to go in, and the American soldiers, he shot it up in the air. <laughs> and the people that get scared, and they run back. We saw that the North Americans were denying people access to their homes. They sent people back and threatened them with their machine guns and forbid anyone to get close to the houses or walk in or around the alleys leading to the houses. Then they began to set the houses on fire. The Panamanian soldiers then know each alley, how to go in and how to come out and where to go and come through, you know, from one street to another street, climb up and go to a balcony and things. So the only way I think the American soldiers could get rid of that, that danger was to burn down the buildings then. That way the, the, the Panamanian soldiers couldn't have nowhere to hide. I'm unaware of any operations by U.S. military to go through and systematically burn down buildings. Uh, you get fires that, that are started by weapons, but I, I haven't seen any reports of U.S. military folks going through and setting buildings on fire. The North Americans began burning down in Chorrillo at about 6.30 in the morning. They would throw a small device into a house and it would catch on fire. 
que lanzaban hacia las casas, quemando las casas. They would burn a house and then move to another and begin the process all over again. Quemaban otra las otras calles. They burned from one street to the next. They coordinated the burning through walkie-talkies. And from there, the whole of Korea went to nothing. as a testing ground for newly developed high-tech weapons, such as the stealth fighter, the Apache attack helicopter, and laser-guided missiles. There are also reports that can't be explained indicating the use of experimental and unknown weaponry. Nosotros tenemos testimonio de personas combatientes we have testimony about combatants who died literally melted with their guns as a result of a laser. We know of automobiles that were cut in half by these lasers of atrocities committed by weapons that fire poison darts which produce massive bleeding. I think there's a high probability that there was uh, a use of sophisticated weaponry merely to test it. Ramsey Clark, former U.S. Attorney General, has conducted extensive research into the invasion. Uh, above all, though, there was um, a use beyond any conceivable necessity of just sheer firepower. Just an excessive use of force uh, beyond any possible justification. President Bush wanted to make certain that this was going to be a success. This was going to be his vindication, a, a denial of the wimp factor in spades. So they sent down a force that wasn't going to encounter any effective resistance, would simply overwhelm the opposition, and the fact that it would cause tremendous peripheral damage, damage to innocent civilians in, on a wide scale, was not of concern in the planning. What we intended to do was to reduce collateral damage. I don't know what that means. Collateral damage? That means if the target is right here, you're trying not to have damage to other places. You're trying to have damage to a specific target because that's a military target, and you're trying to minimize damage outside of the military target. And they worked. My God, we were sending in artillery and airstrikes against a very heavily populated urban area. There was absolutely no question that there were going to be immense numbers of civilian casualties. We walked among the dead and saw the tanks run over and crush our dead. We saw a great number of civilian cars with whole families inside. Kids 
women and the driver torn to pieces and crushed by the tanks. The soldiers passed the tanks over the people's bodies, some of them dead, some of them wounded. And there were cases that we know, for example, the case of Manuel Carro, the case of Alexander Huber, and some others whose bodies were totally destroyed. During the days and weeks following the invasion, the U.S. policy of applying overwhelming deadly force continued. There were many reports of indiscriminate killings and executions of unarmed civilians. We have eyewitness accounts on the part of a number of Panamanians where soldiers took Panamanians who had been captured uh, after the invasion and executed them on the street. I have seen no reports of U.S. soldiers executing anyone in Panama. We have carefully checked out every such report. And if we think there is evidence that a U.S. soldier murdered a Panamanian, we will court-martial that soldier. Uh, that, uh, that sort of behavior would be absolutely unprofessional, totally unacceptable, and illegal. Rafael Olivardia, a community leader from El Chirillo, was taken to the Balboa High School detention camp the morning after the attack. There were many Panamanian troops at the Balboa concentration camp. They didn't seem to know what was going on. They were sitting on the grass with their arms and feet tied with plastic bands. I, along with many other people from El Chorrillo, witnessed their execution right in front of us. Eight of the soldiers at the entrance were executed by U.S. troops. There were many reports of unprovoked killings at U.S. roadblocks. One woman told human rights investigators how her brother and four friends were killed at a roadblock on December 23rd, three days after the initial attack. All five of the passengers were forced out of the car and put face down on the ground. They were riddled with bullets. They were simply going to visit family members when they were detained and killed in the street. Although 19 cases of homicide and alleged executions were filed with the Southern Command, all but two of these cases were internally reviewed and dismissed. During the invasion and throughout the days and weeks that followed, access by the news media was tightly controlled. The Pentagon flew in a 16-person press pool from the major U.S. media. The pool did not reach Panama, however, until after the crucial first four hours of the attack and were restricted to U.S. military bases for the next day and a half. Our regret is that we were not able to use the media pool more effectively. The goal was to get reporters down there so that they could see for themselves the early hours of the operation. Now, once they got there, uh, we had a breakdown in our ability to move around. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.